my fellow Westorians. Happy Sunday. Happy Valar Reredis Day. I'm Aziz, and with me is Ashea. This is Valar Reredis. As we take on a feast for crows, Valar Reredis seeks to entertain while preparing you for the winds of winter. Many of the new plot lines and locations launched in this book are not yet resolved, taking us to our greatest heights of mystery yet. For the remainder of the Valar Reredis journey, we'll be looking ahead as much, if not more, than we've been looking back, but the core message remains true. The best books are those that hold up to rereading, <laughs> repeated rereading, that is, George R. R. Martin. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets like Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Also, check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. You can find his thoughts in every episode of Valerie Reedus, and he's recording in tandem with us with additional thoughts. Same goes for Nina Friel. Her thoughts are on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. And her thoughts are also throughout all of Valerie Reedus. Today, we've got some really cool chapters. I am super excited for this batch. The first chapter today is The Drowned Man, the one with the horn from hell, a.k.a. The Gang Holds a King's Moot. Brienne 4, the gang goes to the Whispers, a.k.a. Blood for the Old Gods. The Queen Maker, the gang does not crown Marcella, a.k.a. Aris versus Ario. And finally, Arya 2, Storytime, Origin of the Faceless Men, a.k.a. Saving Needle for Later. This is the only time, other than our first week of Feast for Crows, that we won't have a Cersei chapter. How about that? Cersei dominates this book. But she's taking a week off here, right in the middle. This is probably the biggest stretch of lore chapters we've seen so far. The King's Moot is full of tales of heroes and bloodlines and artifacts and imagery and hints towards strange origins. Not to mention a new incredible ancient artifact. New ancient artifact? Okay, that doesn't quite fit, but you know what I mean. Even if it doesn't work the way Euron says it will, the dragon horn, it's clearly magical. We even get talk of skin changing and the mysterious lands to the west that Alice Westhill and her sun chaser and Brandon the shipwright with his fleet sailed in search of. Brienne's chapter gives us tales of Galadon of Morn, of Clarence Crab, a.k.a. Crackbones, the history of Crackclaw Point, the Whispers and the Squishers, whom I have a lot to say about, including their relation to the Ironborn. This chapter gives us a Werewood and the first use of Oathkeeper, made of Valyrian steel, another cool artifact. Now, that is a new ancient artifact. <laughs> Arianne's chapters fittingly begins in some ruins and recalls elements of the Dance of the Dragons, Queen Nymeria of the Roinar at House Dane, and their famous sword. Arya, meanwhile, learns quite a lot about the Faceless Men and their origins, including the tale of the first ever Faceless Man. Included are tales of the awful Valyrian mines that many who did not flee with Queen Nymeria found themselves down in. A Feast for Crows is a book full of plans that backfire, often causing the exact opposite of the intended result or effect. Great harm or death happens as a result of these mistakes or these plans gone awry. Earlier in the book, we see a lot of these plans laid. Here, towards the middle, technically we won't cross the middle till the first chapter next week, but whatever. We're, this is the midpoint, roughly. This is when we start to see those plans fall apart with frequent smaller scale plans falling apart, scattered throughout expertly because George is just really good at this. But only death can pay for life, right? And these dead plots give life to grander, newer ones. Ancient, new, same concept. 
In Brienne's chapter, the first men slew the squishers in a kill-or-be-killed fashion as Nimble Dick's plan to deceive the bloody mumbers gets him killed and buried beneath a weirwood, a stark reminder of how the heart trees are fed. Brienne's reward is true but counterproductive information on her quest. Randall Tarley sends Heil Hunt after Brienne just in case she finds Sansa, only for Heil to be fully won over by her instead as Jamie and Podrick were before him. Oops. The plot to crown Marcella fails, but so does the plot to stop the crowning of Marcella, thanks to Darkstar. Doran could have stopped it much sooner, and that's exactly where things went so terribly wrong. Now he has a dead king's guard, a maimed princess, and a rebel lord on his hands. A costly lesson to teach his daughter. Quite a few hopes came crashing down like waves at the king's moot, but none bigger or louder than that of Aaron Damphair, whose plan to deny his hated brother the throne only served Euron's interests, allowing him to charm them with a vision so moving it even won the priest himself over for a moment or two. For gathering the Ironborn on this ancient tradition not seen in eons, Aaron's reward is torment in the bowels of silence. The Drowned Man, the one with the horn from hell, a.k.a. the gang, holds a king's moot. If you consider how Euron captures the hearts and minds of almost everyone on Old Wick, even some of those opposing him at the start, well, it would not have been possible without a gathering. Was he just going to go around blowing that horn at every different castle to win supporters? These are the kinds of thoughts Aaron himself will be having, along with others just as bad or worse, after the events of this chapter. And the first line is... Only when his arms and legs were numb from the cold did Aaron Greyjoy struggle back to shore and don his robes again. Aaron begins the chapter literally numbing himself in the sea. It's a reminder of how personal the king's mood is for Aaron as much as it is a huge socio-political religious event for the Iron Islands themselves. Going into the sea not only reminds him where he believes his power against Euron comes from, but literally numbs him physically, as if Aaron doesn't want to be able to feel Euron, which that certainly makes sense. The rusted iron hinge appears in this chapter, something we didn't know what that was. We didn't know what the rusted iron hinge was when this book was published. And in fact, we didn't learn what it was really until... You know, in this interim period, I guess it would have been around 2016 when the Forsaken chapter came out. Exactly. It would have been <laughs> Balticon so, 2016. Would that have been May? Something like May 2016, yeah. something like that? Maybe April? I'm not sure. Yes. But roughly around there. I think May. We learned that it's something now that on reread, we know that it's a sound he associates with sexual trauma to himself and to his now past but favorite brother, Uragon. So this chapter is much more potent. There's much more pathos here. There's much more... You can actually feel sorry for him despite him being not a very good person because Euron is far, far, far worse and no one deserves what Aaron did. You wonder if it had something to do with why Aaron is the way he is now or the way he was before the way he is now because he's been maybe two or three different distinct people in his life. After so much sincere, zealous faith poured into this endeavor and it fails, well, here's what he thinks. Even a priest may doubt. Even a prophet may know terror. Aaron Dampair reached within himself for his God and discovered only silence. As a thousand voices shouted out his brother's name, all he could hear was the scream of a rusted iron hinge. It's very poignant that the sound of Euron is replacing, or a sound that Euron makes, the sound he associates with Euron, is replacing the sound of his God. Because 
it does appear that Euron is trying to make himself a god of, of sorts. If I'm not sure if that's the exact right phrase to use, but I think it's close enough. It's certainly evocative, powerful, and epic. So there's yet more testament to rereading here. There's so many glorious twists and turns the first time through. It's an epic thrill ride. There's so much happening, but the characters are so much deeper and the world is so much richer and you understand the world building and the you've had more time to let it all settle into your mind and fit. It's more natural. You're not confused by so many new things at once. So there is some incredible but far from straightforward world building in this one. Even multiple reads can't get you to some of these things. It really has to be researched or discovered or something. So he's going to be ashamed that he ran from Euron, but knowing their history, no wonder he ran, right? It's like, wow, I'm surprised he managed to face the guy in the first place. That's, that was brave in, its, in and of itself. In a way, Aaron's decision to become a priest of the drowned god, his whole life path has been one huge failure. All this turning back to the old way, everything it's done for his family, his people, for himself, it has not done any good. It's been a bad. It, it, you can't really say that was a good choice, Aaron. Just like Asher was saying, the old way is killing them. It's, it should stay the old way. They need a new way. As Nina writes, this chapter is the acme for Aaron's story, which is how we know it's all about to come crashing down. This is Aaron being what he believes he was always meant to be, the drowned god's strong and faithful servant. He's standing on the hilltop, naming the banners. He's seeing the result of his own religious work through the power of his own preaching. He's proud almost, but he's still thinking that it's all for the glory of the drowned god. He thinks it's going to work and it's, it's something amazing that hasn't been seen, a ritual unseen for thousands of years. He's living the way Galon Whitestaff lived millennia ago. Speaking of Galon Whitestaff, that's, uh, that Whitestaff was made out of Weirwood. He was a holy man ordaining the rulership process for the glory of the old way long time ago. So he's just thinking that recalling the old way, the old times, these old heroes certainly makes a lot of sense for someone trying to bring these things back. So he feels like it's kind of his day almost, but still all glory for the drowned God. And it's just going to just collapse Speaking of personal and political, it's a nice touch that there's nine steps leading up to the crest of Nagas Hill, which there were nine sons born of Kellon Greyjoy. And it's like, he's kind of like walking through his own family history to get to this moment, you know, right? So I like that take. Not even Asha, nor the reader, nor Tris Botley, who did guess correctly that, almost correctly, that Euron killed Aaron. He hasn't killed him yet, but uh, Aaron probably wishes he was dead and it appears he will be dead soon. So close enough guess there, Tris, but None of them knew how, quite how bad it was. Like they couldn't guess it would be that he's been captured and tortured. That it, even they don't realize Euron is that bad. That he's capable of doing those things to his own, to his own brother. It, it appears that Euron is collecting priests. And so, well, two birds with one stone capture Dampair, who's working against him, and add another priest to the mix for whatever he's going to do with them. It won't be nice. Euron claims he can win over the dragons with his horn, which he claims he got by walking the shattered peninsula of Valyria itself, whose doom is described a bit in Arya 2, three chapters from now. Nice cross world building there by George. That brings us to Naga's ribs, one of our very favorite features of all the Iron Islands. Could these bones be petrified werewoods? That's a, a long running theory that we certainly lean towards. Ha <laughs> ha. The, the trees are leaning, so we're, yeah, that's it. It's entirely possible that's what they are. We are to, we're told that werewoods turn to stone after vast time frames. And well, it can't help but notice the way 
They're described. On the crown of the hill, four and forty monstrous stone ribs rose from the earth like the trunks of great pale trees. Mm, Great pale trees, you say. Well, maybe he didn't mean for them to be werewoods, George, that is, but there is a huge resemblance. We're not going we're not, we're not to let that go without mentioning it. <laughs> maybe they're really stone pillars that ancient Ironborn erected in memory of the Naga legend. Not actual werewood, but real stone, which has been standing for a long time. Maybe the Grey King making Naga's fire his thrall was a sort of fire mage or Brelorite priest who could use fire. Certainly, we have no idea what the Grey King was, but if he was taming dragons and making use of fire in unusual ways, it's entirely possible he was a magic user of some kind. Maybe the Grey King's marriage to a mermaid is a reference to the Deep Ones, origin of the Ironborn. The old way is the invention of tradition as much as it is living of that tradition. Aaron wants to believe the old way was the same pinnacle of Ironborn glory, the same defining trait of their success that really hasn't existed for a long time, but it did exist back in the day. They were very successful. But in fact, the old way is returning to that is now unsustainable. The things that made the old way work back in the day aren't there and it's nothing they can change. The mainland is different. Cultures inland are different. They, uh, they protect themselves against the ironborn differently. It's just a different world. It's not their difference. It's the world has changed. So there's some additional old gods lore here as well. In addition to that brief mention of the white staff, and possible magic within the Grey King. Maybe he had skin-changing ability or some old god's magic of some kind. But anyway, it's no coincidence, perhaps, that the first claimant to the Seastone Chair is Gilbert Farwind. And he's presented as a foolish guy that has really has no chance to win. Even Aaron doesn't trust him, which is a little strange because, as one commenter pointed out, shouldn't his their closeness to the sea and their isolation from humanity, shouldn't that make them more holy? they really, really live with the sea even more so than the rest of the Ironborn. But no, they're thought of as strange and off-putting. He notices, Aaron does, that his eyes change color, which is kind of funny because, well, Euron has multicolored eyes too. And that's the guy who ends up winning, obviously. And of course, he thinks that Gilbert Farwind is this vision of a land far to the west. He thinks it's some sort of trick of the storm god, which is also funny because Euron is going to make himself a living embodiment of the storm god in a lot of ways too. So what's up with that? But those lands to the west, he mentions Nymeria, starting uh, another run of Nymeria getting mentioned. And it just strikes me, just really throw your imagination at this one. Consider what skin changing into sea creatures would really be like. I mean, like, imagine being inside a whale and going just really deep down into the depths or really far away. Shay and I were talking offline, like, how? what's the range on that, you know? Yeah, we were, and I brought up, well, if you wear woods, you can go far, so maybe we can make a connection there. Seems like Orel was able to go pretty far in his eagle. eagle. Yeah, you feel like some creatures, they just naturally go far. Again, you're talking about a whale, for example. But maybe you'd go out on your boat. Yeah, and the then whale. the whale's nearby. Yeah. yeah. And it's like scouting for you. Can You can spot storms in advance. I mean, it seems like it would be a really powerful tool to have skin changing into sea creatures as a way to help you voyage and avoid disasters and find land. Heck, just to be better at exploring, you'd find, you could find land, you could 
go lots of places you couldn't. Just the possibilities are pretty limitless. And well, how can you not think of Arya if we're talking about skin changing and being an explorer? I mean, and Nymeria, like, hello. <laughs> that is incredible, right? That's just a great thought. I love that idea. It just really it tickles the imagination massively. And and think of this too, like some some sea creatures are supposedly really, really old, ancient, much more so than land creatures could be. I mean, you got like things like turtles that can live a long time and elephants live really long, but there's some evidence that can, there's certain types of species of sharks can live hundreds of years. There's this living shark that was found in the real world recently that was estimated to be 400 and some years old. What does that do with skin changing? If you're, if you go into the mind of a whale that's seen things hundreds of years ago, like the, again, the possibilities are just truly as vast as the deep oceans themselves. It's really, really, really cool. I could just sit here and talk about this for the entire episode, but I guess we should move on. <laughs> but there is more on this vague, on this topic scattered throughout, because as I said, Nymeria gets mentioned in several places. The, the thought of going west is, is a part of Arya's potential arc. So we'll be coming back to it. Lonely Light is mentioned. That is the spot that the Farwinds live, the farther Farwinds. There's two batches of Farwinds, really. There's some on the western rocks closer to the main Iron Islands, and then the rest of them live at Lonely Light. And in Fire and Blood, we get a little more on a thousand years after Brandon the ship ride disappeared, Iron Men sailing out from Great Wick were blown off course into a cluster of rocky islands. Eight days sail to the northwest of any known shore. Uh, their captain built a tower and beacon there, and Farwinds was born. He called his seat Lonely Light. Fire and Blood also mentions that some of the Ironborn call the men of Lonely Light Selkies. That same phrase is used, Selkies is used to uh, describe the ancient inhabitants of the Shield Islands, which of course the Shield Islands isn't terribly far from here. Obviously, Euron, it's going to be Euron's first conquest. So the Selkies are kind of like uh, seal people. They're like seal humans. There's various legends about them. We talk about that in... What episode we talk about that? I think maybe one of the Ironborn episodes. I'm not sure, actually. But we definitely talk about the Selkies because we love to talk about... Actually, yeah, I never... We talk about them in Manderley Part 1. That's what it is. House Manderley Part 1, we talk about that because we think that that would have been an area they would have been associated with. And of course, Manderleys with their mermen. You want to connect all the different ancient sea creature legends, Selkies, mermaids, deep ones. You take your pick or all three. Are they the same thing? Are they related? Hmm. So the greater tale of Naga comes up here. Nice, long, awesome quote. For a thousand years and seven, he reigned here, Aaron recalled. Here he took his mermaid wife and planned his wars against the storm god. From here he ruled both stone and salt, wearing robes of woven seaweed and a tall, pale crown made from Naga's teeth. But that was in the dawn of days, when mighty men still dwelt on earth and sea. The hall had been warmed by Naga's living fire, which the Grey King had made his thrall. So there's lots of things that Euron's going to embody here later. We've already talked about how he's a lot like this, embodies the storm god in a lot of ways. He's going to show up later with a crown of shark's teeth, so tall, pale crown made of Naga's teeth. A little bit of a similar imagery there. But of course, ultimately, taming Naga's living flame, taming a sea dragon. I mean, it's a story about taming a dragon, making a dragon his slave. So it's a pretty straightforward nod to what Euron's trying to do when you look at it that way. The choice of living fire is an interesting line, an interesting way to put it. If Euron does manage to steal a dragon, 
will that dragon ever be free of Euron or will the dragon die? And if the dragon dies, then, well, maybe that's when we get an undead dragon, dead flame, perhaps, shadow fire. Maybe that's where that term, what that term refers to. I'm eager to learn what that means. And this seems like a decent candidate amongst not many candidates. So eh, maybe, maybe. Talk about a few other characters from the King's Moot. Eric Ironmaker. Nina points out he's sort of like an embodiment of the failure of the old way. It's not just that he's literally old, which he is. He's like 88, which is very old for Westeros in general. It's that all his glories, all his acts of bloodshed, violence in the name of the Ironborn are very firmly in the past. And he can't support himself. It's pretty symbolic that he needs his grandsons to carry him up. And well, as we see most of the Ironborn, most of the Iron Islands, they can't rely on their families to do that. They usually don't have much of a family left. It's too common for the men to be killed off or maimed or not there. So even when Asha calls for him to stand, he, he can't do it. She's the reformer. And so it's kind of symbolic that even she can't get anything from him and will be forced to marry him <laughs> later. Now, let's not forget that Euron's going to make those two marry. Now, Asha runs away and she marries a seal in place, which as another Selkie reference, perhaps. <laughs> It's pointed out by Nina, really good catch here. He's a little too, uh, he's not quite old enough to appear in the most recent, the next Duncan Egg, but he's old enough to uh, possibly appear in Duncan Egg eventually. Be pretty cool. Dunstan Drum's candidacy is the flip side to the problem of Eric Ironmaker's candidacy. If Eric represents the failed attempt to force past Ironborn glories onto the modern day, Drum represents the Ironborn headspace chasing those glories. It's noted that he just goes on and on <laughs> about these stories and, and people even start to get bored. It's amazing that like we wouldn't get bored, I don't think, if we were got to listen to that. But the Ironborn were like, yeah, this is these are neat, these are good stories and all, but how do, what does this have to do with you being king? And even Aaron starts to tail off. And some of the tales are really old. Like some of these drums that he's referring to are so far gone. And it's a good, another good example is these, their heroes, the things they're trying to do are so, so far gone in the past. And the idea, that's part of why when Euron comes in with a new, new idea, they leap to, for it because, well, <laughs> their minds are stuck in the past and someone actually showing them a new option is, well, it blows their minds. One of the coolest things too about Dunstan Drum is we get a second Valyrian steel blade. We got a nightfall, and now we get red rain, a black Valyrian steel sword, and a red one, it sounds like. That's cool. Victorian does all so many things right, but but his speech is terrible, of course. His optics, he looks great. He looks like an ironborn. He's tall, he's fearsome, he's rich, and he's got experience. But he just his speech is so the opposite of Euron's. And Euron's is inspiring and and maddening and and touching. But Victorians is just short and blunt and inspires nobody. It's also kind of ironic. He talks about, they talk about sailing to the ends of the earth and, and how it's not worth it. And then he ends up doing it anyway. He gets sold on doing that by Euron sending him to Slaver's Bay. <laughs> Asha. Now, I wonder about this. Where did she get those turnips? I guess she, she went, we, we, think, we talked about how she went back to Winterfell to see, to survey the destruction of it. Maybe that's when she grabbed those turnips. Important to keep track of where the turnips came from, I tell you. She talks about friendship with the North. And well, 
you know, even though we all tend to like Asha's plan and look at it like, yeah, I wish more Ironborn thought like this. She's still got a, a lot of wishful thinking in this plan. There's still some, I don't know that this is that smart of a plan, even though it is a the type of plan I hope that can work in the long run. The idea that the North will just say, okay, let's be friends now after what the Ironborn have done to them recently and in the past? Nah, no, 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 no. I don't think so. And the Northerners are just, are closed to outsiders very much too. It's not just that they don't like the Ironborn. They don't really like other people all that much anyway. I mean, consider the free folk coming through and how that's widely rejected. And not not just by the Northerners, by a lot of the free folk too. <laughs> the Umbers, like, well, what does John tell Stan? Is like, don't let the Wildling army cross the Umberlands, or they're going to attack you. And the Mormons, look at what the Mormons say to Asha. Is like, we're hard and you know hardy folk because you made us this way, you Ironborn. So it's just undoing the past won't be as easy as saying we want to be friends now. It just, yeah, it, it, it's going to take a lot more than that. In Brienne's chapter, the one right after this, there's talk of the squishers, an underwater race, and there's various allusions to them breeding with humans. And well, look at this line. We were born from the sea, and to the sea we must return. Another oblique reference to the Deep Ones, quite possibly. In the original Lovecraft story about the Deep Ones, hybrid human versions are born human and slowly change into their Deep One form. And when the change progresses far enough, they return to the sea to live amongst the rest of their kind for thousands of years, watery halls and such. So yeah, (laughs) whoa, (laughs) it's pretty dark and and evil sounding, isn't it? More from the world of eyes. This sounds like a fringe theory, but it's directly in world. And well, there's a lot of evidence. Let's go. An even more fanciful possibility was put forth a century ago by Maester Theron. Born a bastard on the Iron Islands, Theron noted a certain likeness between the black stone of the ancient fortress and that of the seastone chair, the high seat of House Greyjoy of Pike, whose origins are similarly ancient and mysterious. Theron's rather inchoate manuscript, Strange Stone, postulates that both fortress and seat might be the work of a queer, misshapen race of half-men sired by creatures of the salt seas upon human women. These deep ones, as he names them, are the seed from which our legends of Merlings have grown, he argues, whilst their terrible fathers are the truth behind the drowned god of the ironborn. So effectively, he's saying that some half-breed humans and deep ones become Merlings, or some of them have you know more human features and live on land, or maybe the quarter quarter merlings are people. It's not clear what percentage we're dealing with here. But as it says, this is the truth, quote unquote, behind the strange differences with the ironborn and that separates them from the mainlanders. Some of these same differences appear elsewhere. The idea of humans breeding with aquatic humanoids from the depths might sound pretty fishy, but George has a few moments where he's rather unsubtle about it. Well, mm, we're going to go deeper into this in Brienne's chapter because the squishers are very much in line with this. Deeper? Aha, exactly. <laughs> but here's one of the guys Victorian left behind at Moat Kalen, and this is one of those rather unsubtle examples. 
a big man, but pop-eyed and wide of mouth with dead white flesh. He looked as if his father had sired him on a fish, but he still wore a longsword. And his name is Dagon Cod. Cod? Uh, When he's killed, it says he, quote, jerked like a fish on a hook (laughs) before collapsing, too. So, like I said, not subtle. The name Dagon is popular with the Ironborn, it seems. Kellon's Kellon Greyjoy's own grandfather was Dagon Greyjoy, the same one that we were just talking about that was active during the time of Duncan Egg. He led an uprising against the mainland that lasted for years. He managed to defeat the Starks, the Lannisters, but not Blood Seagull. I mean, Blood Raven. Now, why did I just say Blood Seagull? Because there's this weird seagull during this chapter that just sits there and caws at Aaron, and it's like, okay, whatever, a seagull. But... Then the horn blasts, and it's so terrifying and loud and like, whoa, what is up with that horn? And the seagull doesn't budge. He just sits there and chills. The horn stops blowing, and the seagull a minute later like, ah, again. It's like, wait a second. What kind of a seabird doesn't jump and fly away at the slightest sound of commotion? Anyone who's lived near seagulls knows they can, it doesn't take much to get them going. A loud sound like that, absolutely. They're not going to ignore that. That's going to startle birds as much as it does people. So the thinking maybe is that Bloodraven is watching the king's mood to see what happens, maybe because he's concerned with what's happening with Euron. More about Euron and his connection to Bloodraven another time, or you can check out our, our scripted episodes on that. But hey, I did not notice that seagull before in any of the other takes we've had on it, so I had to throw that out this time. So watch out for Blood Seagull. I mean, Bloodraven. So back to this, though. Poor Theon, he missed the king's mood but he has a line in A Dance with Dragons that fits here beautifully. It comes while he's down in the crypts of Winterfell looking at statues. Brandon the shipwright who had sailed beyond the sunset, Theon Stark, the hungry wolf, my namesake, Lord Baron Stark who made common cause with Casterly Rock to war against Dagon Greyjoy, Lord of Pike, in the days when the Seven Kingdoms were ruled in all but name by the bastard sorcerer, Men called Blood Raven. Look at all that together. Brandon the Shipwright, Dagon Greyjoy, Baron Stark, who is the Lord during the time of Duncan Egg. He's the character noted to be dying during the She Wolves of Winterfell, which was the, supposedly the fourth Duncan Egg story. Now it's probably going to be the fifth one, but it, it discusses the, the situation in the North as several Lord Stark have died recently and it's a bunch of women ruling and etc. Hence the name She Wolves. That's really neat, right? And, uh, and then Theon Stark himself even included. He gets his own name in there also. So that's just so cool. All those things combined into one little quote there. Now, again, Eric Ironmaker, I mentioned that's Asha's great-great-grandfather. Dagon was called the Last Reaver. So Eric, when he sailed with him, that was the nickname Dagon had. Asha has a cousin named Dagon the Drunkard. There are ships named Dagon, at least two that we see. Dagon is a Lovecraft story, is one of his earliest, and it's a real-world Iron Age deity seen even in the Bible. The historical version, like most gods, has a few different traditions and forms, but if you want to just simplify it and say the the real-world Dagon Iron Age deity was a fish god or a merman god, that would be pretty much it. I mean, you look at images of it, it's like, that looks like a merman, dude. But in terms of Lovecraft's world, Dagon may be just another name for Cthulhu itself. Cthulhu lives in a great sunken city, perhaps the inspiration for the drowned god's watery halls. It's called Relay. 
compared to the Drowned God's mantra. Now, look at this. The Drowned God's mantra is, what is dead can never die, but rises again harder and stronger. And the Necronomicon in Lovecraft says, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even death may die. So, yeah, that is just right there. It's so cool. So when, he, when Aaron hears this, what's he really hearing? What does this line really represent? Quote, Even here, he could hear the ceaseless rumble of the waves and feel the power of the god who lurked below the waters. Aaron went to his knees. Is he hearing the call of Cthulhu or George R. R. Martin's version of of Cthulhu? Uh, Cthulhu has a head with tentacles and so does the visage on the Iron Throne that Aaron sees in his visions of the Forsaken. It's more Kraken-esque than octopus-like, but same difference. (laughs) I mean, head with tentacles, right? Ooh. So really, when Euron says he's holier than Aaron, that he's godlier, that he's more ironborn even than Aaron is, I don't know if I can disagree. It's just that the god of the ironborn may not be what Aaron thinks it is. Euron may have perceived the terrible truth of their origins and their being more clearly. Maybe because of those drugs (laughs) opened his eyes to the truth. The driftwood crown was literally made from driftwood by tradition, returned to the sea with the passing of each king and remade again when a new king ascended. That's a pretty cool tradition. Cool world building there. But it also might be inspired by Lovecraft's universe. The deep ones in, in Lovecraft would tra- trade strange jewelry to certain mainlanders who would give them in return rather dark things like people and blood and mostly just people. So it's kind of like, well, that's kind of what the Ironborn do. They they drown people, they give sacrifices, and the sea gives them things in return. It's not literal jewelry like it is in Lovecraft. It's not actual strange, you know, golden figurines and of of strange origin. But it's still a similar concept of of taking the crown from the sea. Euron calls back the old days too. Not quite as old as the Deep Ones. But let's have his speech because it's really darn good. We are the Ironborn, and once we were conquerors. Our writ ran everywhere, the sound of the waves was heard. My brother would have you be content with the cold and dismal north. My niece with even less. But I shall give you Lannisport, Highgarden, the Arbor, Old Town, the Riverlands and the Reach, the Kingswood and the Rainwood, Dorne and the Marches, the Mountains of the Moon, and the Vale of Aaron, Tarth, and the Stepstones. I say we take it all. I say we take Westeros. Yeah. He glanced at the priest. All for the greater glory of our drowned god, to be sure. For half a heartbeat, even Aaron was swept away by the boldness of his words. The priest had dreamed the same dream when first he'd seen the red comet in the sky. We shall sweep over the green lands with fire and sword, root out the seven gods of the Septons and the white trees of the Northmen. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is an amazing speech. Like, Euron does his job perfectly. But it's also a lot like, I can't help but notice, it's just, a, if you look at it like a real-world politician, he's just kind of over-promising, which is, politicians have been doing that forever. That's very standard. Like, you make me, give me the power and... I'll give you everything. (laughs) It's just, yeah. We've also also seen politicians bribe or be bribed. So the fact that he just gives more than his opponents is also fairly standard, even though it's presented in this very unstandard way. So Euron's really just mastered this part of the dance. He comes to a dead island of fed up, defeated people and offers true magic and wonder. 
As we said last week, he's just an enigma. They've never seen anything like this before, but he's just enough like them to win them over and just enough different to be their leader and to inspire them to do things they've never done before. The horn, though, that is not like a real-world speech or charisma or salesmanship. It is something else. And let's take a look at it. Quote, And now the glyphs were burning brightly, every line and letter shimmering with white fire. White fire is to be noted since pale flame also appears in the hands of a shadowy figure associated with Euron and the Forsaken, in Aaron's induced visions, that is. If if a dragon does go to Euron, the best bet might be on Viserion, the cream-colored dragon who shoots pale gold flames. Now here's a little more about the horn. A thin wisp of smoke was rising from the horn, and the priest saw blood and blisters upon the lips of the man who'd sounded it. The bird on his chest was bleeding too. I love that wisp of smoke. It's evocative of the 14 flames of Valyria, just the whole fire magic associated with them and with dragons themselves. We see smoke coming from dragon nostrils a few times as well. Now, I do think he went to Valyria. There's other evidence of it, though, again... As I've said in other places, I don't think he personally walked on the shores. I think he made his slaves do it. Kind of like how the Valyrians forced their slaves down into these hot, impenetrable, deadly mines. It's a similar concept of Euron forcing them into this volcanic hellscape to find treasure. In this case, he's looking more for artifacts than raw materials, but it's a similar concept of forcing slaves into fiery hellscapes to get loot. Either way, I don't think the horn came from there, though. I think he got that from the warlocks. And we'll talk about more that more in the Reaver chapter, Victorian's next one, which is also when we get the introduction of Shade of the Evening and him mentioning the warlocks. Note, too, that we get three blasts of the horn. <laughs> three blasts of the horn. The same signal the Night's Watch uses to say the others are coming, the same signal that greeted Balerion when he returned with Erea on his back after flying to Valyria. And guess what she was full of? Fireworms, the kind that appear in those very same mines of Valyria that we just referenced. Nina writes, Euron's here to restore a version of Valyria with himself as its one leader. And I like that take a lot. He's here to bring death and destruction, to feast on the corpses as he brags about the crows doing, and as the others want to do with humanity. He wants to restore that style of leadership where The people at the bottom suffer horribly to provide slight gain for the people at the far, far top. And the top, the top, top, top of a society like that is insanely powerful because it's not just wealth, political power, the power that comes from generations of dynastic control. It also includes this sorcery and this built up magic and all that stuff. So it's a whole nother level that can't fully express in a real world comparison. Joe writes, again, looking at the larger impact of Euron as a character is his destruction of faith and hope and of rules. He does things people are simply not supposed to do. You're not supposed to be able to go to Valyria. People just don't even try because it sounds like, yeah, why would you be able to go there? It's a ruined volcanic hellscape. Why would you even try? Let alone the supernatural issues with it. So there you go. He breaks that rule. He breaks these rules around the gods. He breaks these rules around kin and kinslaying. Horns aren't supposed to burn your lungs. What is this thing? <laughs> Euron isn't supposed to sit the sea stone chair because he's in ungodly. He's, he's not supposed to win. Aaron arranged everything, and the drowned god is supposed to support his vision of what the ironborn are. But no, 
None of this is right. Aaron breaks, or Euron breaks all these rules. It's a part of who he is. It's a part of what his character brings to the story. He really is an avatar of change in unexpected and dark ways. It's interesting to read his thoughts on the darkness not scaring him, nor the gray and grisly bones of his soul in light of the forsaken, which he is going to feel those things much more deeply and darkly, and he then will examine his own soul because he's going to be forced to drink shade of the evening, and it will scare him then. It will scare us too, hell. <laughs> We're not even the guys suffering, but man. All right, a few thoughts from you guys. Brandon Winslow says, the kindly man calls the 14 flames living fire too. Oh, very good catch. Living fire, living flame. That, I did miss that. Very nice. Jonathan Hagee says, Seagull is Blood Raven's streaming service like Peacock. <laughs> nice. <laughs> like it would have been too obvious if that had been a raven, right? Sitting on top of those bones. You could easily just say, oh, why would that be Blood Raven? It's not a raven. But if it was a raven, wouldn't that just be too obvious? Stephanie the Peerless says that Eric Ironmaker is like an ironborn Robert Baratheon with his hammer and his son named Thormor. It's like Thor, more Thor. Yeah, big hammer. Yeah. So there's some Robert and some Thor in there. <laughs> Stefan uh, B says, a thousand years and seven? <laughs> it's like one upping Blood Raven by, or six upping him. <laughs> maybe that's another way to make us think of Blood Raven, to take our mind towards him to, to maybe make that seagull catch. Or maybe it's just coincidence. But it's so peculiar. A thousand years and seven. Hmm. What's that about? Also, he notes the line, is he here among us now? When Aaron announces the beginning of the king's mood. And that might be a sly reference to the fact that the future king of the Iron Islands may not be among them now if, it's, if it happens to be Theon or Theon's son through the woman on the Miraham, then no, he's not here among us now. And well, that's interesting. Some other folks in our groups pointed out that Gilbert Farwind is a maybe a nod to Eric the Red or Leif Erikson, uh, the, the two explorers that uh, discovered America before Columbus, way before Columbus. <laughs> Archmaster Emma adds another detail to the thought of skin changing amongst the Ironborn, especially the Far Winds. She takes note of the line that these killer whales and, wool and other whales can be referred to as, quote, wolves of the sea. That line also appears in the world of ice and fire uh, twice, I think, wolves of the sea. So yeah, if they're trying to make us think of skin changing into sea creatures, George laid that in there a few times. And I agree with Emma. I think that might be what is being suggested to try to make us to bring these th ideas closer together by using similar language. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that chapter. I sure did. We've only got one more Ironborn chapter this entire book, but of course we have other things to say about them. And in fact, that, this next chapter is one of those places. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Brienne 4. The gang goes to the Whispers, a.k.a. Blood for the Old Gods. Just as the hidden paths and marshes of Crackclaw Point are easy to miss, so are the many references. 
This chapter is seen by an unfortunately high number of people out there who've only read it once, probably, as one where not much happens. Ha! She goes to the Whispers, kills some worthless brave companions. So what, what else happens? What's the important stuff? Well, yeah, I would disagree strongly that not much happens. Just as many readers undervalued A Feast for Crows initially, only to see it rise to one of the most praised, this chapter similarly reversed itself uh, in terms of the way it's viewed. Over time, it revealed many layers, slowly but surely. If I could be more specific, it's big on themes and world building. And here's the first line. East of Maidenpool, the hills rose wild and the pines closed in about them like a host of silent gray-green soldiers. The difficult terrain, extremely insular people, and constant infighting reminds me of the mountain clans of the north or of the Vale and of the free folk. And these are indeed first men. Bogs remind me a bit of the Krennic men, too. Brienne is roaming around as a beacon of what was lost or what never was and what should be. And I like that phrase because the last chapter, the Ironborn chapter, the King's Moot, there's a phrase, the thing that should not be or what should not be. And that's a Metallica song from the album and uh, Master Puppets. And it directly quotes that same Lovecraft line about strange eons, even death may die, and talks about hybrid children and things like that. So... Characters who focus on her appearance and her outsider status fail to see how great Brienne is. But Jamie, he got to spend time with her and he was won over. He saw it eventually. Podrick didn't take very long to see it. He's won over. And Sir Heil, he's sort of like the third follower of Brienne, slowly winning her over or winning him over as well. Sir Heil's been with Lord Tarly since before Sam was a teenager. So when he gets fired for backtalk, one can raise an eyebrow and suspect he may have known he was going to get fired. This may have been like a, I'm going to yell at my boss and get, and I know I'm going to get fired for it kind of situation. May as well have the last word kind of deal. He wanted to follow Brienne. Lord Randall said no. And worse, he said she deserves to be raped. So Sir Hyle's like, well, I'm still going to, I still want to go. So he talked back and Randall fired him. So I think you work for a boss for 20 years, you know, you can see that coming. So Sir Hyle isn't the best of dudes, right? He's not a great guy, but He's definitely on the rise. He's turning around. He's having a reversal of attitudes. Maybe a lot of people look at him as kind of a micro Jamie. And I like that comparison because he comes around the same kind of way Jamie does. He slowly starts to respect her, slowly, begrudgingly, but fully respects her over time, even though he still kind of laughs at her from time to time, and makes fun of her. He still got this long, so he's been socialized a certain way for so long and these habits die hard. But the bottom line is he's following her. He gave up his job, basically, to follow her around. And, you know, he, he sees her acting like what a true knight should act like. And he's like, wow, this is special. So I, I wonder how many more people she's going to inspire over time. I mean, she's got a following of three right now. And, of course, that gets all blown up when she encounters Lady Stoneheart. But for all we know, heck, maybe she'll inspire some of the Brother Without Banners. They were inspired by Beric Dondarrion because of his... Uh, partly because of his great charisma and his adherence to noble values. Well, here, if Brienne comes along and they can look at Stoneheart and be like, she's kind of making us do evil stuff, maybe this Brienne person's better. Now, that's just a random theory. I don't know if Brienne's going to have much to do with the brave companion, with the uh, Brother Without Banners after Stoneheart, but it, it's, it's something that fits nicely. And it, what's awesome about it, too, is she's not just pretending. She's not trying to be like a knight. She's doing it better than anyone but she's not playing a role. She's not just 
this is what a good night would do. So I'm going to do it. No, she just does it. She's a natural. She doesn't consider anything, really. She just acts the way a knight's supposed to act instinctively. And is it, what's interesting to me about that is that Sir Heil is unlearning these corrupted values that he's gotten by being around this version of it for so long, being around the male version, the Westerosi corrupted version that's been around for thousands of years and has thus fallen apart like anything does after thousands of years. Red Ronnet Connington, these other knights, Take what Sansa learns about knighthood at the beginning, which of course is very naive and, and storybookish, but it doesn't have to be this other version either where the knights are giving roses to mock. Like maybe the truth, maybe reality could never be what Sansa wanted it to be. I mean, of course she doesn't want that anymore, but what younger Sansa wanted, maybe it could be somewhere in between. Maybe it could be better. It could, knighthood could be a better thing than it is now. So Brienne has these memories of beating Red Ron at Connington in the melee and these other things she has, and she's fond memories they are. <laughs> Jamie's going to give Red Ron another smack with the hand. He lost to the swords that she confronts in this one. Draw, draw a line through that. Okay, Red Ron it, hit by Jamie with the golden hand. Jamie lost his hand to Zalo and Timian and these other guys and Shagwell, and some of them get killed here. Okay, hmm, hmm. Shagwell, to be cleared, Knocked Jamie down and stood on his back. Zalo did the deed, and Timian was one of the ones who helped capture them. She hates roses. Given the false suitors, of course, that's a thing. It makes sense. But she also hates the rose sigil. As it's noted in her memories, she beats up Loras Tyrell. And, well, <laughs> she notes that he never hardly paid any attention to me, which is, <laughs> that makes sense. He wasn't part of the game being not interested in women, and also hopefully being a, a better person than that. I'm not entirely clear that's why, but of course his orientation made the whole thing just off the table. I wonder if that's going to come up again, is the point here. Is she going to see roses again and just be inflamed by that and just kind of her temper will flare up and it'll give her this extra boost of strength that she seemed to have gotten when it happened in her memories here? It's a reversal of Brienne Jamie in that instead of a valorous male knight being given a magic sword by the maiden in a style of a classic chivalric romance, we have a valorous female de facto knight being given a famous, uh, given a sword by a famously handsome man about as close to a magic sword as you can get. Valyrian steel is about as close as magic as we get. And arguably it is magic, but hey, that's beside the point. The just maid's name reflects both the giver and the use. Galadon, as the story indicates, even though Nimble Dick laughs at this, it's only fair to use this sword against certain opponents. And Brienne does the same. She doesn't break it out until she thinks it's an important time to use it. Most of the time, she was just carrying her regular sword around. Galadon is said to have only unsheathed the sword three times. And Brienne's used it twice already uh, against Pig and Timian, and she's going to use it again uh, against Rorge at the end of the crossroads. So we wonder, is there going to be a third time? Is it going to be against maybe Lady Stoneheart or maybe something far, much farther down? Is she going to use it against a dragon? Is she going to use it against Stannis? I don't know. There's just, a, there's a, maybe she'll, decent chance she uses it more than three times since she's already used it twice, but maybe not, maybe not. It's also incredibly relevant, Galadon's story, that is, to understanding Brienne as a person, as a character. Galadon wasn't the perfect knight because he was the strongest or most talented. He was a very strong and very talented, but he used his power justly. He didn't 
throw his weight around, so to speak. He wielded the just made only when it was fair. He didn't just take every advantage at all times. He conducted himself with honor. And clearly, Brienne conducts herself with honor. I don't need to sell anyone on that one. So it's the point is, behind all this, being a knight is meant to be a responsibility as well as a privilege. If you're one of the people in society that's given the power of life and death that said, hey, you're the protectors. You're the ones that we expect to train and fight and wield weapons in defense of the realm. Well, what happens when that's turned around on the people? Well, that's not a good thing. And that's why it needs to be seen as a responsibility and not a privilege. And that's something that Brienne gets, again, something that doesn't really have to be taught to her, something that she just kind of naturally understands, which what makes her so inspiring is that it, it, she naturally exudes these knightly virtues rather than having to have learned them. Like someone like Kyle is relearning. So again, just made, Joe Buckley points out, was used to slay a dragon in the story. And we wonder, like I said, that's, that's why I brought up maybe Brienne will do that way. Uh, I don't know if Brienne will kill a dragon or maybe an actual Targaryen, but you know, Stannis isn't a dragon, but he's got Targaryen blood and a couple generations back. So eh. anyway, this chapter opens up about as far away from the King's Mood as possible on essentially every level. Like geographically, we're on the far eastern side of Westeros in a dark pine forest, which, uh, you know, and instead of a, a barren island where the only trees might not be trees at all, not really clear. So here you have characters that take a whole lot of pride in their local knightly heroes Far from supporting a change in royal power of the sort, the Kingsman is designed to create Nimble Dick is adamant that the dragons rule here and that's who the rightful king is, no matter who sits the throne right now. Their loyalty is set. And that is very interesting. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for debate. It's not up for winning them over. Their loyalty rests for different reasons. It's not something that can be won over because it was already won over by Visenya. We'll talk about her in a sec. So we have the tale of Crackbones, Sir Clarence Crab, another example of a knight before there were knights, a feature of our Sermon of the Mirror Shield episode. The notion that he, quote, tied a dragon's tail in knots is also used by Victorian to describe a character that's been coming up quite a lot. We just talked about this guy last chapter several times, and here he is again, quote. So forth from Pike, Lord Dagon sailed to make the sunset see his own. He bearded the lion in his den and tied the direwolf's tail in knots, but even Dagon could not defeat the dragons. It's a metaphor for trickery and cleverness, for outwitting them. So this crackbones guy, that's how he defeated a dragon, using his wits, not with his sword, at least not directly. But this story includes cutting off heads and resurrections, a clear reference to Robert Strong, no? Yeah, who also happens to be around eight feet tall, like crackbones, so... Interesting. Yes, very interesting. I don't expect Robert Strong to outwit anybody, but <laughs> maybe he'll face a dragon. I don't know. Anyway, I think that's an interesting reference there. Someone may defeat a dragon using trickery. That makes a lot of sense because a head-on fight with a dragon, I mean, that's, that's no way to fight a dragon, even if you're another dragon. That's just a good way for them both to get killed. Speaking of two dragons fighting each other, well, that happened in this area during the Dance of the Dragons, and... The dragon Sunfire was badly, badly wounded, almost lost a wing, in fact, and never flew properly again, was able to fly, but never flew well again. Sunfire recovered in this area, and it seems like, well, people were wondered where Sunfire went. For a while, the, the dragon seemed to have vanished. 
after Lord Wallace Mouton's ill-fated attack drove him from the field of ash and bone outside Rook's Rest, history loses sight of Sunfire for more than half a year. Certain tales told in the halls of the crabs and brunes suggest the dragon might have taken refuge in the dark, piney woods and caves of Cracklaw Point for some of that time. Yeah, right? So that makes a lot of sense. We also referenced Sunfire in that very same Sir Win of the Mirror Shield episode I just referenced a minute ago. So, of course, the Maidenpool, an army from Maidenpool, emerged to finish Sunfire off, and we're like, wait, where is this dragon? And, well, so these same people, the crabs and the brunes, the people that, that Nimble Dick mentioned several times, him being one of them, a crab, and, well, it's easy to see through this chapter where that a dragon, even a dragon, despite their huge size, could find a place to hide amidst all of this. We even get, at one point a rock formation that Nimble Dick says used to look like a dragon, but a wing fell off of it. (laughs) So mm, that definitely could be a Sunfire reference. And we also have, speaking of the just made and fighting a dragon and cutting a wing off a dragon, we, we have an example like that from House Royce during the storming of the dragon pit. Supposedly a wing was cut off of one of the dragons in the dragon pit by a Valyrian steel blade. Aha. But now let's move away from dragon lore back into the depths of the Deep Ones. Squishers? Brienne gave him a suspicious look. Monsters, Nimble Dick said with relish. They look like men till you get close, but their heads is too big and they got scales where a proper man's got hair. Fish belly white they are with webs between their fingers. They're always damp and fishy smelling, but behind these blubbery lips, they got rows of green teeth, sharp as needles. Some say the first men killed them all, but don't you believe it? Note that hybrids in Lovecraft are also human males paired with deep one females. That's another exact pairing here. Pairing, haha. Now here's the Lovecraft from his own mouth description of the deep ones. I think their predominant color was a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills and their long paws were webbed. They hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four. I was somewhat glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. Yeah. So that hopping, we don't see that represented any with with the squishers themselves, the way it's described in that quote, but Shagwell notably hops around kind of creepily. So maybe George decided to shift that detail to him. Not that Shagwell wasn't creepy enough already, but he's also in muddy gray and pink. He used to be in uh, blue and pink or green and pink, but his motley has faded. Pink is newborn, is the color most associated with newborn. Gray is most associated with death. So he's kind of like a what is dead can never die combo in his coloring there even. There's also that large toad idol near Sothorios made of the same stone as the sea stone chair. These legends stretch all over the world. 
Here's one from the Thousand Islands. They speak no known tongue and are said to sacrifice take sailors to their squamous fish-headed gods, likenesses of whom rise from their stony shores, visible only when the tide recedes. Yep, they're everywhere. Legends about them, beliefs in them, their impacts, statues to them, etc. There's another clue here. Uh, squishers don't die easy is something said by Nimble Dick. And in Lovecraft, deep ones are immortal. They can be killed by accident or by swords or by, you know, weapons, but they don't die of old age. So, well, yeah, it sounds like you might need an Oathkeeper type blade to deal with one of them, huh? In the last chapter, we had talk of skin changers among the Ironborn, when that's usually a first man thing. And here we have talk of a creature that sounds like a far-flung legend of the Ironborn here amongst first men peoples. So more George showing us that all these legends have some connection, that they do come together and that they can be placed outside of their own region and still fit really well. It's this, this cross-chapter world-building technique that George does. And I think this is some of, it's one of the best examples of it here because this, these chapters have so much lore and it's really cool how well it all connects. Here's some other little tidbits that connect to all that. We see webbed digits on some of the sister men. We see that in Davos's chapter when he visits there that the Lord Godric Borel has the webbed fingers and it's common amongst his family, he says, and amongst other sistermen. The Driftwood Crown we mentioned last time is a, maybe a thing that comes from the Deep Ones or at least a nod to them. There's also the Driftwood Throne that's supposedly a gift of the Merlin King to House Velaryon on the Isle of Driftmark. Yeah, like that's almost the same thing. Instead of a crown, it's a throne. I mean, it's the, it's the right to rule given by the sea, the symbol of rulership, and it's driftwood in both cases. One is just the far west of Westeros on an island. One is the east of Westeros on an island. Yeah. <laughs> Joe writes that there's another little tidbit here. The history of Crackclaw Point includes sort of a similar tale. He notes, like I did, about the familiarity to the Kranich men, but he also mentions the Dornish in that they're really good at using their home territory as a defense. It's really well, uh, it's like home field advantage to use a sports term. One of the places that's really hard to subjugate because the terrain makes it super hard for an army to invade and the people are extremely stubborn about submitting on top of the terrain, making it doubly difficult. So the Kranich men are a great example of that. The Dornish are a great example of that. But those are more famous peoples. This, they're, th th these crack, uh, these, People of Crackclaw Point are very much like that, but they're just not as famous, I suppose. The Whispers itself has this gray-green feel everywhere, kind of like an ocean. You kind of think of Patchface talking about under the sea, and you wonder if this is sort of relevant to that because obviously Patchface under the sea, that would be, you want to talk more about the deep ones, well, that would be perhaps who he was taken by or was affected by. I mean, can't cross that off the list too easily. We see stone shapes formed by the waves over the years here, which feels sort of like the stone statues that are carved by people in the Thousand Isles and other places. Also, it sounds like the caves near Hardhome. Also, it sounds like the caves of the Children of the Forest. And since this is a first man area, well, Children of the Forest, first men, caves, it all fits together really well. And of course, children are known as the singers, right? The singers of the songs of earth. So whispers, if they're hearing whispers from that sound, it is evocative of the children's presence very nicely. But nothing says 
first men or rather old gods and the children more than werewoods, right? And we actually have one here. In their midst was a pale stranger, a slender young werewood with a trunk as white as a cloistered maid. By the way, with the way you said that, we actually have a werewood here. I was like picturing, now come on out. <laughs> come on, enjoy, werewood. Get on camera. <laughs> yeah, is that uh, Mandy Helton or something? Yes, right? uh, <laughs> yes you're right. <laughs> yeah, again, the, the white trunk is referenced like a cloistered maid, which the white trunks like pale trees were on the uh, Naga's ribs over there in the Iron Islands. Uh, the only other pale stranger I could directly find is Lady Misery, who is a.k.a. the White Worm, so also a, a, a person evoked, uh, evoked in white. And she was a Master of Whispers type, the one that arranged for the death of poor young Jaehaerys, uh, son of Aegon, who had his head cut off by blood and cheese. And, well, it also makes us think of Blood Raven, pale stranger. That obviously fits fairly well. His presence has been felt a lot these recent chapters. The tree gets its first blood, so does Brienne. I mean, her first kill, that is. To hear him tell it, the men of Crackclaw Point had watered their trees with blood is something Brienne thinks about after being told that by Nimble Dick. Hello, old first men, old gods watering their trees with blood. Archmaester Emma points out that that's interesting too with all the blood sacrifice. She noted the same thing about these connections. Why is this tree so young? If this is an older area, well, it's a newer tree. I wonder about that. And maybe a young werewood is actually pretty old <laughs> compared to human life. I'm not sure. It's a very interesting idea. The only other youngish werewood I can think of is up at the Night Fort of all places. There's a kind of a new, it's probably not as young as this one, but it seems to be youngish. Certainly it has, to, it couldn't be more than a couple hundred years old, the one at the Night Fort, because well, the night fort was only abandoned a couple hundred years ago. And I doubt they had a tree growing in their kitchen while they were still living there. Or if, if so, it would have probably just started growing. So anyway, only one other example, and I'm not sure we can do a lot with these comparisons, these two trees, but it's really interesting. It might be a sign of, you know, magic returning to the world, or maybe it's just this area is slowly returning to what it was a long time ago. Now that the dragons are gone, now that the people, you know, there's not as many knights coming around here, not as much global politics affecting the area. Not really sure. But yeah, earlier we, I pointed out that this area is loyal to the dragons because of Visenya. And it's important that it's Visenya. Dick Crab's strong Targaryen loyalty is a testament to her diplomatic strength, Visenya's skills. It had been very independent as a first men area. It's really unique. This is a first men area. Almost all of Westeros is Andalized. So this is a pocket of original first menadom <laughs> to make up a word here. It resisted Andal attempts, Valyrian attempt. The Celtigars are mentioned here, sending tax collectors frequently in Dick Crab jokes about how, well, most of those tax collectors don't even get to go back there. We kill them, you know? So it's, it's another sign of their maintaining their independence as most as possible. Yet that flips when it's the dragons. Nina notes that it's, there's a little bit of similarity between Visenya's treatment of Crackclaw Crack Point and the way John advises Stannis to deal with the Northern Mountain Clans, which is... Go amongst them personally. Deal with them directly. Show them your face. It's that they appreciate that. They don't want to be told from a distance via letter that you have to submit. But if you go talk to them face to face, it's honorable. It shows them that they're worthy of a personal visit. It, it, it's respectful, even though you're coming to conquer them. <laughs> but still, it is, it's a form of respect and trust. It's like, look, I'm coming here 
to talk to you and face you and all that. It shows a lot of things. So we can talk briefly too about Clement Crab because it's interesting to see these various crack claw point men serve in the King's Guard, which is, it's very Manderly-esque because it's, again, it's first men area. Where are all these knights, first men knights coming from? That's just really neat. It's really unusual combination of cultural mixing. It's uh, to borrow a term I've used many times from Dan Carlin, aka the hardcore history guy, a cultural estuary where two cultures have a border and it mixes in ways that aren't seen anywhere else. It's very unique. Now, of course, an estuary in the real world is, is where saltwater and freshwater come together and new species sometimes evolve amidst this kind of hybrid environment. So Clarence Crab or Clement Crab rather, was one of the three Crab Kingsguard. He had a duel, a jousting exhibition in a tournament against Ryan Redwine where they supposedly broke 30 lances against each other. And Jaharis declared them both the winners, basically. And, well, I wonder if any of this is relevant to coming forward. One of the most loyal to the, king, to the Targaryens, well, who are they going to rise for? Are they going to rise for Aegon only to switch to Daenerys because of, I mean, Visenya was their original, the one who won them over. And you know who won them over in the Dance of the Dragons? Rhaenyra. They stayed loyal to Rhaenyra. So both times it came down to a dragon it, their loyalty was to the female side. Not that it ever was civil war with Visenya, but still, that's who they still remember. So it's basically their influence from the dragons is very feminine, and that could be a sign that they'll rise for Daenerys. They'll start maybe with Aegon since he's already in Westeros, but then maybe they'll switch to Daenerys. Hmm? A lot of possibility here, a lot of interesting. Again, this goes to show this chapter sometimes gets forgotten or, or glossed over, but there is so much here, so much buildup, so much that's coming, but so much of it is hidden behind the scenes because it, it's not directly associated with Bran going, walking through the trees and fighting these brave companions. Also want to mention the comparison to her sword, Oathkeeper, and the fact that Visenya was the wielder of Dark Sister. Great point here by Nina too. Dick openly refers to Robert and his ilk as usurpers and proclaims his loyalty to the Targaryens. I mean, there's not even a Targaryen king in Westeros at the point he says this, nor even the threat of one, or even the notion of one at this point. There's no way Dick has heard about Danny's dragons far over in uh, Karth yet. So this is a stubbornness for a to, to loyalty to a king or a queen that doesn't even exist. Do you they think still reject Robert. Do you think Danny's heard of Dick, though? <laughs> Everyone's heard of Dick. <laughs> so it's a, it's a counter to Jorah's statement from A Game of Thrones. Remember what he said was, the common people pray for rain, healthy children, and a summer that never ends. It is no matter to them if the High Lords play their Game of Thrones so long as they are left in peace. Well, this guy right here is, cares quite a bit, apparently, and he says a lot of other Crackclaw men care, too. They, he does care who sits the Iron Throne, even though it's not directly affecting them, even though Robert's dead, even though Lannister policy is kind of just ignoring them. They still care. So, you know, I think a lot of us kind of agreed with Jorah when he said that because it sounds right, but here's a counterexample. It's not quite so simple. Not to say Jorah's wrong. It's just that he went too far with that. Some commoners do care. Maybe he's right that most of them just want a place for their children and to grow up and to not care about politics, but eh, some of them do. So here's another little side reference. We got uh, the Brune Castle, little quote here. 
Lord Brune's castle dwindled at their backs and soon was lost to sight. Sentinels and soldier pines rose all around them, towering green-clad spears thrusting toward the sky. The forest floor was a bed of fallen needles as thick as a castle wall, littered with pine cones. <laughs> yeah, if it weren't for that last bit, I may have not used the quote and just talked about Lord Brune's castle here, but the thick as a castle wall reference to Dunk is too good to pass over. That, of course, is that repeated phrase said a lot in Dunkin' Egg that's meant to be a little nod to Brienne's ancestry, meaning him. A lot of y'all asked about House Brune and what, what the connection is with Lothor Brune, meaning the guy serving Littlefinger right now. Well, Brune mentions it. He talks about how they rejected him. He went to like try to you know, reconnect with them after he did pretty well at the tournament, at Robert's tournament there, the hand tournament for Ned. And they're like, nah, <laughs> get the hell out of here. So I might have my timeline off. That might have been before the tournament, but either way, they weren't having it. Very insular people, even with their own family. We also hear a mention of Sir Goodwin here. Sir Goodwin is the guy who trained Brienne, the one who taught her to toughen up, who taught her about playing defense to wear people out, all that. So a good, a pretty good guy. And he mentions that his friend that trained, it was the practice yard champion that died when, quote, war came to the Stepstones. That's the War of Nine Penny Kings, which we just did two episodes on with Stephen Atwell earlier this year. It's a really cool saga. And it's going to come up again more, less subtly, rather. It's going to be more distinctly noted. They're actually going to say the War of Nine Penny Kings instead of just an oblique reference to it. When we get Septon Maribald on screen, which is real soon. So... More about the Nine Penny Kings coming. It's a pretty big deal. Of course, it refers to the Blackfire rebellions indirectly. And that, of course, has been popping up all over the place in about half of the chapters, it feels like. And I am here for it. So let's talk a little briefly about the Brave Companions here. They killed a few Brotherhood Without Banners, apparently, on their way. We hear about them torturing one of them to get information. Shagwell emerges from the Weirwood, which is real dark. And there's, there's lots of symbolism there that's been analyzed out in the fandom about what that means, you know, the, this, having this dark jester figure with these different colors emerging from the symbol of the old gods. It's very corrupt, but he ends up buried beneath it or uh, dying beneath it. His blood feeds that werewood, along with Nimble Dick and Timian and Pig close by. But specifically, Nimble Dick is buried under the werewood. And that's interesting because it, it hearkens to the same feeding the trees blood and sacrificing to the trees. It wasn't meant as a sacrifice, but it may serve as one. And so they're sort of playing out that reference. Think of Bran's vision of that woman with the bronze sickle coming to slit that guy's throat in front of the weirwood at Winterfell. Here we have a woman killing several men in front of a weirwood as well, and another man killed by Shagwell. Here is a quote that I just really like. <laughs> she flew it to me in. He was better than Pig, but he had only a short throwing spear and she had a Valyrian steel blade. <laughs> it's just so like, I'm so smug. <laughs> that line is like, yeah, well. And she, you can tell, she's not angry. She's not, she's not like in a rage. She is cold and collected and calm, but also about justice. She cuts Timian's hand off while thinking of Jamie. And remember, Timian's one of the ones who helped capture them and laughed at them and all that. And when she tells Shagwell to dig a grave for Dick, 
she thinks about how he has two hands, one more than you left Jamie, making him dig the grave with his hands. So she's not just killing these bloody members in self-defense, though that is certainly part of it. There's definitely some avenging going on here, and it's about Jamie more than it is about her. She's not making it about her. I mean, she's got reason to want revenge on these guys too, but that's just not her way. <laughs> the j- justice isn't personal, uh, even though it kind of is here, but she's, that's not how she likes to conceptualize it. In, in her mind, these men are just clearly guilty of these crimes, and she, but she wouldn't have killed them if they hadn't attacked her first, I don't think. There's also a dark moment when she catches Shagwell sneaking up on her, which she predicts, and telling him to laugh repeatedly as she's stabbing him. It just really calls up the image of Arya stabbing the tickler with her dagger over and over and saying, is there gold in the village? And by the time she's done, she's covered in blood and it's, it's almost like a brief trance or something. I don't know what to make of that comparison other than to point to it and say, well, you know, Brienne is trying to find Arya, so maybe that's part of the connection there. But it's also just a I mean, release of trauma. There's just so much pain wrapped up in that moment that's being released. Ter- and they're killing some terrible, terrible, terrible people. Yeah, people who just really, quote unquote, deserved it as much as anyone ever deserves it. These guys certainly did. What an amazing last sentence of the chapter two. It's so beautiful. Together, they shoved the dirt on top of Nimble Dick as the moon rose higher in the sky and down below the ground, the heads of forgotten kings whispered secrets. Yeah, a lot of people cited that one. It makes me wish we also always cited the last line, but hey, we can do what we need to. (laughs) A couple great thoughts from Joe here. Precautions and distrust. The main theme of the day is evident on page one. Brienne won't let, let Dick in the bed or even in their room. She reminds herself and him that she is the one with the sword, that she's the fighter. And yet she still enlists Podrick to take a watch each night because you can never be too careful. I think she struggles with this because she doesn't want to put Pod in any extra danger, but she knows she needs him to, and she needs he needs to you know, be learning these things, and they need to rely on each other and trust each other. And he likes that Pod says he could kill Dick as well because, of course, he's confident he could. He killed a Kingsguard, after all. He doesn't brag about that, but he did it. <laughs> he killed <laughs> uh, Mandon Moore. Brienne mentions she wakes quickly. Joe says, ask yourself why she's trained herself to wake quickly. Being a woman amidst, uh, in a man's world of nights, well, yep, I would be on I would be anxious and on my guard too. This is followed up on straight away when, while out on the road, Dick tries to look in the saddlebags but gets caught white-handed. Ha ha, white-handed. What this little scene does is as well as making us question Dick, like, well, is he, what's he really up to here? And yeah, he, he may have just run off if he had gotten gold. He may have just grabbed that and run off. Probably not, though, because he couldn't have escaped. I mean, their horses are faster than him, and he knows that. You wonder if he wasn't being at least partly honest in saying he's checking to make sure he actually has the money to pay. And that's something that comes up later when Brienne's burying him. She thinks, I'm sorry that I never trusted you. I don't know how to do that anymore. She's thinking, too, about how, you know, maybe he was just hungry. Maybe this is just... It really eats at her gut that she has to be suspicious. She doesn't want to be suspicious. She has to be suspicious and she hates that. She wants it to be, she wants to, and she wants to do her part to make the world a place where such suspicion is not always necessary. Brienne thinks about how she almost asked which king Lord Brune fought for, great catch by Nina here, before deciding not to. 
And it reminds her of Dunk because in the time of Dunk and Egg, it was impolite to ask which king you fought for because of the Blackfire Rebellions. It's a very touchy subject and a dangerous subject as well because you don't want you don't want to put someone in a position where they have to admit they fought for the rebel side or the losing side because there's still a lot of animosity out there and potentially unpunished people that maybe some people think deserve punishment for fighting on the other side. So it's a, it's rude, like it's supposedly rude to ask too many questions about someone's bastard child, for example. It's like, it's rude to pry into the origins of someone's natural child. It's similarly rude to ask what side of a rebellion you fought on. It's enough to know that you survived it and you fought because, quote, brave men fought on both sides. And you don't have to, if you're not a leader on either side, you're just, well... We're going to get to that with Septon Maribald and Elder Brother. It's a big theme in Brienne's chapter. So we'll more on that later. Dornish Dame says, Brienne getting lost in the Roses thing and battering Loras reminds me a little bit of John getting lost in his memory of Rob saying he could never be Lord of Winterfell and battering Iron Emmett. Oh yeah, really good catch. I definitely didn't think of that. Yeah, because he really loses it when thinking about Lord, that Lord of Winterfell being denied that his place there. And that's very, that is a really good catch because it's, it's a similar, like you're held outside of the society that you're part of. Like you, you, you have the merit to be a part of it, but you don't have the social standing or the gender standing in Brienne's case f- to be a part of it. So it doesn't feel fair because you have the skills, the talents, the attitude, but your birth is what's keeping you out. That doesn't seem right. Julie A writes, her vengeance may have been a romantic gesture. We might view it that way if the gender roles were reversed. Yeah, it might. It might be. I mean, I do see it as romantic for sure, but bloody romantic. Yeah, I guess that makes you right. That does make sense because she's she has feelings for Jamie and doing something for someone you have feelings for is a little more than just justice for someone that you think deserves justice. So that's a good point. I, I may not have, I may have been underselling the connection there. And it's true. Maybe because of, you know, maybe I have some Maybe I got caught up in the gender role. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is bias. strictly like you, I think I associate the idea of, of that occurrence of a man, you know. Revenging his, revenging like, his wrong his, Yeah, like, like that. that's just way more common. You're right. Yeah, I didn't think of it that way, but you're totally right. Now, he, because he's the helpless one that can't fight now. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's the one that like. <laughs> so that, yeah, actually a really good catch. Great job, Julie. So it's also noted here that other brave companions like, Erswick, who is the highest ranking brave companion left. He was the second in command. So obviously Vargo Hote is gone. But they headed for Old Town. And that's been in limbo for a while. You wonder if they'll cross paths with any of the other brother without banners before uh, the brother without banners who would want revenge on them before they get there, or if they make it to Old Town and somehow interact with the plot down there. Like if they interact with Sam and Gilly or Euron or some of the people at the Citadel that we've met, who knows? Or maybe they'll just hook up with Euron. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities there. Real sly nod here to what Sir Godwin says versus what actually happens in the in this fight here. He says, it's one thing to kill animals. It's another thing to put a foot of steel in someone's gut, into a person's gut. And she literally puts a foot of steel, quote, a foot of steel into Timian's gut. <laughs> so no problem there. By the way, that that fight between Clarence Crabb and Ryan Redwine in the tournament was in 98 AC, just before the death of, uh, like, what, five years before the death of the old king? Yeah, and then, then Viserys I took over, and then the Dance of the Dragons started laying its groundwork. 
Uh, oh, one more actual point here from Tree Girl. She nominates Biter as a candidate for manifested squisher blood with his extreme pale whiteness. His, his teeth are filed, but he certainly is, is evoking thoughts of squishers with their sharp teeth. And he certainly seems different than a human being. And Tree Girl's gonna, f I mean, <laughs> Tree Girl's, no, not you. Good luck, Tree Girl. No, Brienne is gonna fight uh, Biter and Rorge pretty soon at the end of this book. So that would be kind of interesting if that was set up that way. I didn't think about it that way. Also the note that Oathkeeper was, quote, alive in her hand. It's supposed to indicate how, how light it is and how vibrant the sword is. But she notes, maybe, maybe this is an, a nod to the fact that human sacrifice might go into the creation of Valyrian steel. And thus it may have, you know, living beings may have once been in it. So it's like reflecting the soul of that sword. Maybe the, cre the, the humans that went into this blade are uh, being referred to by that quote of a lie in her hand. Cool catch there. And we're ready to move on. The Queen Maker. The gang does not crown Marcella, aka Aries versus Ario. It's our last first POV of the book. And <laughs> a book full of plans gone awry. This one ends more suddenly and surely as any. It's the most obvious failure, most distinct and quick of the failures, perhaps. It's a, but as I said during the intro, it's not just a failure on the count of the plotters, it's a failure on the count of the counterplotters. We go from two extremely wet chapters in a row, three if you go back to last week because it was two Ironborn chapters in a row, really. Give way to this quote. Beneath the burning sun of Dorne, wealth was measured as much in water as in gold, so every well was zealously guarded. Joe notes that we open on a rather beautifully described landscape of sandy dunes and a golden purple sky. We've come to Shandystone, the abandoned well in the... Dornish Desert, and yet another new place for us, both in terms of specific location and the general area. We've been to the Red Waste, tis true, but that was long way back in Clash of Kings, the beginning of Clash of Kings, really, and it doesn't sound half as lovely as this. This is the only chapter we have in the wilds of Dorne so far, but maybe we get more of it in Arya Hota's Winds chapter, going to Darkstar and all that, maybe, slash probably. Another old ruin long past its best days. Really good sequencing by George. We got the Whispers. We got those old castles falling apart. And now we got Naga's Bones. And now we have Shandy Stone, a place abandoned a century ago after the well went dry. Without that well, this is not a, ha a habitable place. It can't sustain a population. It's fine for meeting up and hanging out briefly, but you can't live there. To fill out the ruins and the feel of the place, we get statues with shapeless places and bleached trees. Not werewoods, but a familiar feel. It's unhappy foreshadowing that the statue's head Gerald Dane puts his foot on is described as, quote, the maiden till the sands had scoured her face away, which kind of is what Gerald does to Marcella's face during uh, at the end of this chapter. It's fitting, too, Nina writes, that this chapter begins at this dried well of Shandystone. It's a symbol of how Arianne's plan is dried up even before she's even started it, where the people of Shandystone wisely left once they saw their life source had run out. Arianne is sticking with a plan that's a failure before it's even begun. It can't succeed. They had to bring their own water with them. So Nymeria is mentioned in this chapter. Arianne kind of thinks of herself as a new Nymeria of a sense. She's inspired by Nymeria. Hota saw a carving of Nymeria in his chapter. Aris Okart sees a tapestry of Nymeria in his chapter. Gilbert Farwin just mentioned Nymeria in his and during the King's Moot, Eamon 
Uh, Maester Aemon, that is, mentioned Nymeria sending kings to the wall in golden fetters during Sam's last chapter, which was last week. So lots of Nymeria mentions. Yeah, notably, also, Arianne's next chapter also mentions Nymeria. Yeah, she thinks she wishes she had some of Nymeria's books to read, you know, stuff like that. And Nymeria is a wonderful character. We've done two episodes on her. We have a third one that we'll eventually do, which is the Conquest of Dorne. The first one is her uh, along the Rhoyne and fleeing the Rhoyne and the cities of the Rhoyne are being defeated and, and taken by the Valyrians, which leads to maybe Rhoynish people being down in the mines of Valyria. They certainly were made slaves of. The second episode deals with their time down in Sothorios near the Toadstone in Yeen, which is also strange stone related, but also so much else to do with Sothorios that... It's not directly connected to this Ironborn stuff, but it all fits together. It's all connected. Nina writes, can we just appreciate Nymeria as a leader? I say, yes, we can. She continues, we learn a lot more of her in the world of ice and fire, but that additional info only makes us appreciate her even more and, and makes this stuff with Ariane even more awesome. It fills it out even more fully. The Roynar went through hell with Nymeria, and when they finally landed in Dorne, Nymeria publicly burned their ships, the most immediate and powerful physical memory of home on the Royne. They love their ships. It's the, the, the orphans of the green blood couldn't do that. They, they had to return to the sea, but they couldn't, so they returned to the rivers instead. Well, really, they wanted to return to the rivers. That's what they were used to back uh, along the Royne. They are river people, after all. The green blood is nothing like the Royne, but it's better than nothing. The fact that a majority of the Roina were, were still willing to follow her even after all those moves and after burning their ships just shows how strong of a leader she was. Like, you can't pull that kind of move off without having a lot of buy-in from your people. They really have to appreciate and respect you for you to destroy something they love as a symbol and to not hate you for it. Also worth noting that Nymeria was pretty young with all this. Yeah, it's true. Comparing she, to, I mean, Ariane's also young. Good point. Yeah, Ariane's young too. She was unmarried in in uh, amongst the Roinar, as far as we know, and then went to Sothorios and still was unmarried, and then went to Dorne and helped conquer it and got men had three husbands after that. So yeah. So via that, you can guess she was she was probably you know teenager. Pretty sure she had a kid with that third husband, didn't she? Yeah, she definitely yeah. had ones with the first one and none with the second. But yeah, so yeah, she was just extremely full life. Really awesome story. And the more, the farther we get into a, a Song of Ice and Fire, the more we see connections to her and other characters, including Arya. The discussion between Gerald and Arianne reminds Nina of Danny's conflict in Marine in Dance with Dragons, where Skahaz is constantly pushing Danny's to kill child hostages when the sons of the harpy kill freedmen, but Danny refuses. She doesn't kill innocents, even hostage innocents. But Skaha says, look, you can't have peace with these people. They are not going to behave. They're going to look for an opportunity to rise in bloody revolt, and you're going to wish you killed them. And that is possibly the problem here. Peace between Dorne and the Iron Throne may not be possible unless certain people are killed. But who... Does that have to be? Does, does, do we need to see the Sand Snakes die for this to work? Is that fair? Does it matter if it's fair? Who should die to break that peace? Nina writes, and it's a tough question, but it's going to happen. People are going to die to make this happen. It's going to be more blood, blood for peace, I guess you can say. It's, uh, you need that sacrifice of, of a sort. 
Ariane's history, her memory. She's thinking of how some of this is so very romantic. She thinks about having an attraction to Oberyn. She thinks about her relationship with Darkstar, who the World of Ice and Fire, by the way, reveals something that is not revealed in the books. This is the app, not the not the not not the book itself. Yeah, you should say a world of ice and fire. Yeah, a world of ice and fire versus the world of ice and fire. Specifically says they hooked up a couple times, Dark Star and Ariane. So that's part of why he's she's worried about how he's gonna look at her and Aries might get jealous and thinking that she's made a mistake and all that. So it's also part of why other people, other people in her party are like, are you sure you want to trust him? And it explains a lot about why she didn't see the flaw in trusting him that others did. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, she's biased because she slept with him a few times and her attraction to him throws off her, her full judgment. We get more mention of the Golden Company again. It was already discussed in Cersei's Small Council chapter. It was discussed in Arius Okart's chapter. She thinks it's to do with Quentin. And she has this great line, you will need bitter steel and more, brother, if you think to set me aside. And that is the first mention of the line beneath the gold, the bitter steel, which we'll be getting lots more of in Dance in a Dance with Dragons. And it's funny too, because she may end up marrying Aegon the Sixth. That's a popular theory that I support. I don't so fully sold on it, like as if it's the only option, but I think it's pretty likely as far as these things go. That'll turn the whole thing around. She thinks that the Golden Company was trying to seat her brother on the throne when in fact it will may seat the guy that she's going to marry on the throne. So the Golden Company will become her ally <laughs> and, and has been her uh, would-be ally all along, yet she sees them as a threat. So that would be kind of an ironic twist there. We also have Darkstar doing his boasting about Danes killing Okars. We all have our family traditions. It's a great line. Darkstar is kind of a over the top, but I like that line. And Arianne points out the other side, the, the Okars kill Danes, Danes kill Okars. And, and we did see that in Ares' Aries, chapter that that happens. So yeah, <laughs> it is true. Danes and Okars do kill each other. Here's another great line between uh, Marcella and Darkstar. He was the sword of the morning. He's dead. Are you the sword of the morning now? No. Men call me Dark Star, and I am of the night. <laughs> He's just laughable. He's funny. <laughs> uh, in our episodes on House Dane, I wrote that I think this is an intentional over-the-top characterization in opposition to Arthur Dane, who is rather perfect, rather almost tropey. Not almost. He's a very tropey Arthurian perfect knight figure, like ultra-honorable ultra incredible fighting, just all this stuff. Great symbol symbol of all these things. And Darkstar is kind of the opposite of the tropey villainous knight who is just super evil, kills little girls, but of course can't quite pull it off, is extremely handsome, comes off as untrustworthy. Just lots of these sort of standard over-the-top traits that villainous cartoon knights have. Uh, but he is actually dangerous. Um, he, isn't, he isn't as goofy as his over-the-top presentation may uh, make it seem. After all, Doran Martell considers him the most dangerous man in Dorne, and that was before he did this thing to Marcella, which is part of what people laugh at him for failing to kill a little girl. It's not like she was defending herself, and even if she was, she's a little girl. Come on, man. So, Ariane's thinking, too, she's very, the whole thing is so romantic to her. You can tell that's part of it's, it's like an underlying flaw in her thinking here that she's relying so much on things like destiny and history repeating itself when it really, these things work 
or don't work because of planning and because of good preparation and thinking things through. And those things she didn't really do that well. She thinks of how there's seven of them and that's symbolic to her. That's one of the examples. Off they ride across moonlit sands. Joe writes, the imagery in this chapter is something else. The romanticism returns to her thoughts as well. They can't fail to her. She feels like it's so perfect. How could they possibly fail? But that's, in fact, part of why they will fail because she's relying too much on that. So who told? Nina thinks it was Tyene. Tyene's the one person not punished who was probably in on it. She has the motive, her sister's being imprisoned, opportunity, meaning that these, this level of trust was never there with Doran and Ariane in the first place because he knows that Ariane tells things to Tyene. <laughs> he was, he's, he's explicit about that. He's like, one of the reasons I never told you these plots is because you, you talk. And Tyene's the one he specifically mentions is the one she talks to. Uh, and of course, Tyene is the one who first brings up the idea of crowning Marcella. Yep. <laughs> so you know that her and Ariane are, are, uh, have been talking about this in the past. So if we, uh, if we extrapolate a little from the TV show that the Santics were setting all this up, kind of setting it up to fail, if Darkstar is with them and has been all along, he, this is what he would have wanted to do. He's like just trying to find an opportunity to do this, to force the issue, which is what Tyene wanted. They wanted to force the issue by killing Marcella. And well, if Ariane wouldn't agree to that, so they maneuvered around her. And like, well, Ariane doesn't want to agree to kill Marcella. We'll just make it happen our own way. And yeah, so I agree with that. Basically, all the... The other option, other option I'd like to present, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds of who else could have done it. I am a fan of Dalt, Andre Dalt being perhaps another candidate for spelling it out, for being the, the, the one who spills the beans to Doran because Marcella doesn't trust him at first. She has kind of a reaction to him like, until I get to know you, I'm going to call you Sir, you know, Sir Andre or whatever. I'm not going to call you by your friendly close-up nickname. Now, maybe that's a red herring because it's a little straightforward when you look at it that way. And this Dalt character doesn't seem like he's some great plotter or anything. Uh, and he is also punished. Even though his punishment seems pretty light, still, he did get punished. All the other plotters got punished. Tyene, nothing. So, I don't know. The other possibility that people should not be setting aside or should at least be aware of is that more than one person talked. It doesn't have to be just one person. It can yeah. be multiple people. Very good point. And in yeah. this, though, I also want to make sure, I think it's something that is good to remind everyone, when looking at things like this, think about what has relevance, significance within the story. What yeah. has, means something. Taim, it being Taim, that means something to Ariane. That, that says a lot. Anyways. She'll be a lot more betrayed by that than if it was Dalt or Sil Spotted Silva or any of those. Yeah, yeah, so I like that. I like that take a lot. Another take from Nina here, nice nod to Sorella and Tyene's personalities with the story of Oberyn and Shandystone. Sorella was interested in the history of the place. She's kind of <laughs> projecting most of us, I think, <laughs> asking about the history of, of that location. And of course, Sorella is the one at the Citadel, so that also fits with her character super well. Meanwhile, Tyene was taught by Oberyn how to milk the vipers for poison. <laughs> and Arianne was distracted by thinking about sex. <laughs> So everyone was doing their thing there. In Kohor of the Rolor followers, burning down the black goat, and we wonder about Benero. Benero is the high priest of Rolor at the Valentine Temple. He preaches about Azor High Reborn coming and maybe even specifically Danny being that champion. It's not a huge leap from calling on Rolor devotees to be active soldiers in the righteous cause of Rolor to Rolor followers, believing that they were being called upon to destroy false gods. Meaning 
we're already seeing the breakout of this Relorist violence that may come to Westeros in the long term as they join Danny and, decide and want to follow her, seeing as her uh, as a savior, as a messiah figure. So it's cool that here in Dorne, that's just percolating just a little bit and that we're hearing about that because that's a pretty, that's pretty far away that's happening. Cahor is really far away. But still, it's big news. This is happening. And Arianne has a literal quote, we look up at the stars and see such different things moment in this chapter. She's looking up at the stars and finding Nymeria's star, convinced that Quentin is trying to rob her of her birthright. Meanwhile, Quentin may have already been attacked by pirates and seen his best friend murdered and is about to join the windblown and see hell on earth at Astapor. So yeah, Quentin is not out there partying, waiting to take his take the lordship. He's, he's in a hell of a place right now. And he is not even slightly interested in taking his sister's birthright. It's, it's a very sad state of miscommunication and missed, uh, misinterpreted motives here. But that said, Arianne has a good reason to distrust Doran. We've covered a lot of that already from Arius's point of view. It was a little clumsy. The way they left Dorne in a way that they were spotted, it wasn't sneaky. You saw them leaving on a ship in a half disguise. And it looks suspicious heading east to go talk to the Dragon Queen. I mean, that it doesn't look good from what Arianne already had seen. So Doran maybe didn't do a good job putting himself in his daughter's place and seeing what she saw. On the other hand, he didn't know that she found out about Quentin going overseas. So there's a lot of people operating on half information and it really going badly. It fits in so well with this theme of plans backfiring it's a nice touch too that Arianne's plan is behind schedule. <laughs> there are a few hours back, right? And at one point in the chapter, they realize they're a little late. <laughs> Who is that she's more like her father than she <laughs> is, is maybe realizing the man who is always a little behind schedule on doing, uh, executing his plans, her father, Doran, of course. This was a pre release chapter back in, I think it was released in like 2004 or, or early 2005, maybe probably 2004, but I remember it being one of the extra chapters put out ahead of time. Give us a little teaser to, to play with before the full book dropped in, in, at the uh, early, late 2005, early 2006. And uh, I don't remember any big differences from it. I, I didn't bother to go look to find what the original version looked like because I in my head, it was pretty similar. But now I kind of regret not looking because there may have been some fun differences. We'll have to go back and, and look at that and see if, and report later if there's anything. Maybe in the Princess and the Queen chapter, we'll, we'll take note of that. Anyway, this is one of those cool ones that had, maybe had a different version. Same as the uh, Ironborn chapters as well. Wait, the Princess and the Queen? I'm sorry, the Princess, princess in, in the, the tower. tower. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. I was, I was, <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Comment here from Dornish Dame. Love that we go from Brienne and her regret that she cannot trust anymore to Arianne, a POV who, in some cases, trusts too much. Oh, very good take. Yes, that's a great call. And with that, we can move on. Arya 2, story time, origin of the Faceless Men, a.k.a. saving needle for later. Not your typical training montage scene, but it's a fair way of looking at it from a distant point of view, at least structurally somewhat. It's a a young person learning to be far more than what they are so they can go out in the world and, and participate in the story in a greater fashion. A significant amount of time seems to pass in this chapter. All in this one, she goes from her first few days at the temple to having learned enough of Bravosi, the language, to head out in the city where interactions will be even more in common 
and she'll have an endless supply of human activity to practice those observational skills and to get even better at speaking the language. Before that, she practices the lying game, becomes more and more comfortable with bodies and death. But all throughout this, she doesn't cease to be Arya, even a little, even when that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to make her not Arya anymore. They're trying to make her no one. But you'll notice that in this chapter and going forward, it doesn't really ever seem to happen. It just becomes more and more of an act for her. And she's just so good at it because she's been concealing her identity for so long. Well, it's part of the reason the House of Black and White saw this potential in her. But maybe it's even more than they, they thought. I've got some new ideas about this chapter. Very new ideas. Very different, very maybe shocking ideas here. So let's have some fun. It's another chapter where almost every sentence has something lurking between the lines. There are constant details in this chapter on the House of Black and White itself, various peoples and gods and beliefs, seriously deep lore into the origins of the Faceless Men, and hopefully, if I'm right at all, major clues as to what's going to happen to them and to her, the kind of stuff that I hadn't thought about before, and I'm not sure many other people have, if any. So let's do it. First line is... Each night before <laughs> sleep, she murmured her prayer into her pillow. The list, but Joe Buckley points out, it seems like POVs often have a mantra or two, like Brienne's, I'm searching for a maid of three and 10. Podrick is like, sir, m'lady. <laughs> There's a I think of for Sansa, porcelain, ivory, you know, oh, that yeah. quote. That's a good one. The list is Arya's, certainly. And the first name on her list is Sir Gregor. He appears to be rather dead, though, walking around. So I'm not sure what to make of that, but I kind of don't think she'll ever be the one to deal with him. But we'll see. In a story very strong on themes of identity, it's highly notable that the House of Black and White seeks to remove all aspects of personality and identity to turn her into an instrument of the many-faced God. And we learn in this chapter that the Faceless Men originate deep in the hellish minds of Valyria. Just as the first Faceless Man heard the prayers of those around him, so did the kindly man here, Arya, whispering the names on her list. And when pressed about what her prayer, she admits that she wants those people dead. They tell her that cannot be. Revenge is not how they operate. It's forbidden, quote, Before you drink from the cold cup, you must offer up all you are to him of many faces. But just as she never gives up Needle, she never gives up her prayer. The last chapter she has in A Dance with Dragons, she goes down to the third level, that's the sanctum, and gets a new face put on her, the ugly little girl face. She's told she will dream of that girl's trauma, or might, but doesn't. She dreams of the faces and of the people she's killed and the next morning just goes right back to her prayer again, but silently this time because she's learned that they might be listening and she can't have them hear that because that prayer is Arya Stark's prayer. It's not a prayer for no one. Needle is, of course, not just a sword, not just revenge. Needle was Rob and Bran and Rickon, her mother and her father, even Sansa. Needle was Winterfell's gray walls and the laughter of its people. Needle was the summer snows, old Nan's stories, the heart tree with its red leaves and scary face, the warm, earthy smell of the glass gardens, the sound of the north wind rattling the shutters of her room. Needle was Jon Snow's smile. These are very specific things, right? Smells, feelings, visions, items, personalities. She's not giving away any of that. Not only does she love it too much, but she's really, really stubborn and set in her ways and very self-assured with her personality. She's not changeable very much. Are you thinking about Needle's the heart of the chapter? 
not only because it's literally the middle, but because it speaks so much to who Arya is. She's not just out for vengeance, even though that is what the list is partly about, but more so she wants to be back with her family, her pack. Needle's the last physical memory Arya has of home, even more than Nymeria, who is not physically there, even though she has this connection in her mind, but she's not fully understanding what that connection is, whereas Needle is so very tangible. Needle's a product of Winterfell in every sense of the word. It's made by the smith of Winterfell on the orders of her favorite sibling, which she got permission to keep from her father before he died after, you know, they had that opening scene where she finds, or he finds the sword in her luggage. To that end, it's important that Arya brings up how the gods return Needle to her at the end of the crossroads. She thinks it's, it's a piece of destiny to her. It's like it was meant to be that the sword came back to her. She had Polliver on her list specifically because he took Needle from her. It wasn't because of, almost everybody else on the list was because of something awful they did. But Polliver is more guilt by associate. I mean, he's a bad dude, no doubt. He's with Gregor. But the specific reason he was on the list is because he took the sword, <laughs> not because of atrocities, which is pretty much how everyone else on the list is on there for. Here's another example. Her starkness just coming out even as they're trying to suppress it and even as she's not aware of it. The hardest part was struggling not to yawn. Before the night was done, her wits were wandering. Standing there with the flagon in her hands, she dreamed she was a wolf running free through a moonlit forest with a great pack howling at her heels. You know, by the way, we were wondering about the distance. Yeah. Obviously, Arya seems to be going quite far. Good point. <laughs> really, really far. Yeah, that's true. A wolf dream. Yeah, I mean, this is bravos to the Riverlands. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Really quite a, quite a huge amount of distance. Certainly enough to scout ahead of your ship from a whale. Much farther than that. <laughs> so that's a wolf dream, right? A waking wolf dream. And they continuously challenge her with talk like, are you sure you can handle this? Are you sure you can commit to this? Women can't do it usually because they give life, not death. It's, a, it's like, it's reverse psychology. It's very much, it's like, it's like what Robert is, what they do to Robert <laughs> when they want him to fight in the tournament. It's like, no, nah, you couldn't do well in this tournament. There's no way. You're not, you're not good enough for this. It's like, are you telling I can do this? Blah, blah, blah. And remember, Ned is told by Varus, is there any sure way to get Ned, Robert to do something to tell him he can't do it? It's kind of what they're doing here. They just challenge her and she's like, I can do it. I can be the most humble person <laughs> of all time. You know, things like that. All these great lines that come out of this. And, you know, they want to make sure she knows what she's getting into, but the reverse may be true as well. I don't know if the faceless men know what they're getting into. Arya's successfully concealing things from them. That's a big deal. They're really, really, really good at calling out and detecting lies. But she's already able to get at least one lie past them, if not more, which is that they don't seem to know about Needle. They don't seem to have caught her on that. They don't seem to have punished her on that. And they don't seem to know she's still reciting her list. So she's succeeding in keeping these secrets. She's succeeding in keeping, for example, in, in the next book, she uses her skin-changing power and they don't quite know what's going on with that. And she tells them she doesn't have to tell them because they already she already gave three answers. And this could backfire on them. Think of the plot line here. The theme that's going over and over throughout these chapters is plans going awry, plans producing the opposite of the intended result. Arya's never going to become no one. This scene sets that all up. She's already spent a lot of time pretending to be someone else, many someone else. So that's a perfect example of something she's practiced before she got to the House of Black and White is pretending to be someone else. 
And they can teach her to do that even better, but he's got a lot of experience with that to start. It's just that the, the servants of the many-faced God are tougher to fool, much tougher to fool than, you know, Ruth Bolton or whoever else. But they're giving her the tools to do that. Also, I see a blurring of, of lines here. What's the, what's the real difference between a slave and a servant? Well, there is a pretty big difference, but it's similar. Arya is not brutally forced into slavery at the threat of violence. In fact, they offer her to, you know, we can marry you off to somebody. We can, you can, we can find you service with a, with a merchant. Nevertheless, there's something similar to slavery implied of this version of servitude is giving all of yourself, including your identity. That's, that's wild. I mean, it's so intense and, and overwhelming, right? Killing someone is worse than letting them die, right? Sure, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. But if you have the power to save someone easily and you place conditions of slavery on that rescue, it's, is, it, is that really that much better? Maybe only a little, I'd say. Like, I'll save you. It's really easy for me to save you. But in exchange for me saving you, you have to be my slave or at least worship this God that I worship for the rest of your life. And in doing so, you have to give everything about yourself to that. How much has really been saved of that person if you only save their quote unquote life? It's like Mary Mazdor says, what is life if all the things about it that matter that you cared about are gone? What, what's the point of still being alive if you just have to devote everything to some God you didn't even believe in or had maybe even hadn't heard of prior to this offer. Again, that's not the offer Ari was given, but that is the offer given to a lot of slaves who come to the house of black and white with nothing to offer. That is the charge they're given. You, you can't give anything, any wealth, and you have to give yourself. So where I'm going with this is I get a sense that she's sort of an Anakin Skywalker figure, which is really great for us because Anakin Skywalker is a pretty interesting character, but it's a terrible choice by the House of Black and White. The point is they're just like the Jedi did by training Anakin Skywalker to be even more powerful. They sealed their own fate. They enabled him to be powerful and then take them down, which I think might be happening with Arya. She's being empowered with all these tools of the trade, all these amazing abilities, changing her face, extreme quietness, amazing skill with weapons, and importantly, skill with poisons. The idea of a student who kills the master or masters is a great recurring theme, and I don't know that it's been identified here, but I think it's present. The other recent chapters are all about times past, about ruins and lost glory. Here we get that with Valyria and all other places via all these gods that are seen in this temple that many of which are only fringe worship these days because they're from times long gone. But it may be self-reflective as well. Early in the chapter, she casually notes that sometimes people come in, ask to see a priest, then go down into the sanctum. Later, we find out the sanctum is where the faces are. We also find out there are secret passages leading into the temple that other faceless men use to get in and out. So there's like other ways besides the front door. But the point of the sanctum with people asking to go down there, outsiders, What's being done there is they're going to see, they're asking for the gift for someone else. This is like the contract negotiations. This is when they get told, okay, this is the price for the kill you want. This is the price for us to give the gift of mercy to that person. Now, it's not cheap contract killing by some organized crime gang, which is what we're used to, but saying it's better than that is also a low bar to clear. Being better than cheap contract killers isn't saying much. So Valyria wasn't evil at first, right? They weren't slavers at first. They weren't conquerors at first. They started as humble shepherds of all things. Power and wealth and time 
changed all that. They gained enormous power from dragons. They got the power of life and death over people. Dragons bring woe, as Euron said. They don't sow either. They're not much about growth. They're about conquest, about taking. We see that Arya collects coins and valuables from the dead as part of her day-to-day duties and wonders where they keep it. Quote, She found a room full of weapons and armor, ornate helms and curious old breastplates, longsword, daggers, and dirks crossbows and tall spears with leaf-shaped heads. Another vault was crammed with clothing, thick furs and splendid silks in half a hundred colors, next to piles of foul-smelling rags and threadbare rough buns. There must be treasure chambers too, Arya decided. She pictured stacks of golden plates, bags of silver coins, sapphires blue as the sea, ropes of fat green pearls. It's a good question. It's a great question. It's an open question. Where does all this loot go? Where does the massive wealth that they take in from payments go? They get day-to-day pocket change from people and wealth from what's on their body. But these contracts, these gifts of mercy they give out, people have to pay huge, huge amounts of money. Where does that money go? Follow the money right? (laughs) Follow the money. That's what we do in modern times as we do in old times. Find out where that's coming from, where it's going. Then you find who's behind it all. Is this the Iron Bank connection behind all this? Is this why they have some sort of shadowy connection to the Iron Bank? Is this basically a corrupt murder for hire organization now? Do they start off one way, but over time, wealth has corrupted them? I think it might. Is this a more elegant version of Valyria? Instead of slaves used to extract wealth from deep in the mines, instead of the faceless men extract wealth from desperate or from people who want murder done, it's still profiting from suffering. It's a different package. It's less brutality, less suffering, but it's still ultimately could be brought down to the same thing, which is greed, immense greed. And well... Those who enter his service must give up all that makes them who they are. Can you do that? He cupped her chin and gazed deeply into her eyes, so deep it made her shiver. No, he said, I do not think you can. So again, this is that reverse psychology. They're trying hard to keep her focused, trying to make sure she really wants it, but also trying to, you know, it's also again reverse psychology. So with Robert, he should know better. He's an adult man. He should not be goaded so easily. But this is a child. So to me, this is a little, this is more manipulative. Maybe it's a, You know, manipulation isn't always a bad thing, but I'm wary here for sure. With all that massive wealth they have, they could help her out. They could help out a thousand like her. They could help out 10,000 like her. They don't, that's not really how they operate there. They're not out to do good in the world. They don't care about good. Justice is not a consideration to the faceless men, but justice means a lot to Arya Stark, daughter of Winterfell, where justice is a very strong cultural value And her parents were particularly strong adherents to that. Both Ned and Catelyn were big on justice, on honest justice. So her upbringing is in play there throughout this as a opposition to a central tenet of faceless men belief. And look at how it manifests in these conversations. When she finds out that the very first faceless man gave the gift of mercy to another slave, she's like, he should have killed the masters he would bring the gift to them as well. But that is a tale for another day, one best shared with no one. He cocked his head. And who are you, child? No one. A lie. 
giving the gift to all the masters. So there you go. That's a strong hint that the faceless men caused the doom of Valyria. As far as we know, what other answer could that be? They gave the gift to the masters. There's no other stopping the slave masters of Valyria other than the doom. That's the only time they ever stopped. So that's the only time the masters were ever prevented from doing their nastiness, from continuing this awful tradition of, of slavery and these mines. And he, he says a tale best shared with no one, but he also says it's a tale for another day. So he's meaning no one in the, in the them, as in a faceless man, no one. So he's saying one day you'll be ready for this secret, but not yet. But the sentiment that I want to pay as much attention to as this lore is the who she thinks should die. She always has it in her head. She, she doesn't accept this neutrality stance. She moralizes, but it's almost like stating the obvious in this case. The slave masters are evil. Anyone who puts people through that deserves death. When she puts on that ugly little girl face and hears that the little girl asked for the gift of mercy for herself and not the father who beat that girl, she thinks they should have killed the father anyway. So even after she puts the face on, even after more chapters go by of her training, it's she, her attitude hasn't changed a bit. Let's jump ahead to that. Let's quote it. This is the blind girl chapter where it's, it shifts from the story of faceless man number one to the story of faceless man number two. But one day, the first of us heard a slave praying not for his own death, but for his master's. So fervently did he desire this that he offered all he had that his prayer might be answered. And it seemed to our first brother that this sacrifice would be pleasing to him of many faces. So that night he granted the prayer. Then he went to the slave and said, you offered all you had for this man's death, but slaves have nothing but their lives. That is what the God desires of you. For the rest of your days on earth, you will serve him. And from that moment, we were two. His hand closed around her arm, gently but firmly. All men must die. We are but death's instruments, not death himself. You see what I'm saying here? The slaves that are so desperate that they cannot give anything must give themselves. So the deal is, you can be rescued from slavery, but only if you become an assassin with no identity or personality of your own. I'm like, huh? Now again, that's not the choice Arya was given. Arya, they were like, you can, we'll give you a ship back to Westeros. We'll let you, you know, we, we can teach you to become a high-valued courtesan. You can have service with a wealthy merchant. Lots of choices. But most of the people don't get that choice from what we can tell. Regardless, Two, either, no matter what, whether other choices are offered, Arya's not going to come through all this and think, this is good. <laughs> I mean, it could be worse, right? Yes, it could be worse. It could be the minds of Valyria. A devoted servant of the many-faced God would accept this as, as a state of the world and say, okay, well, this is our belief system. I just don't think Arya is going to accept it, though. So compare Arya going deep into the sanctum, being changed but still emerging as herself committed to the ideals she's had all along. The first faceless man deep in the minds was the first of something new, unseen before in this world. There's something special about that first servant and the many-faced God, perhaps something un, uh, unnatural or supernatural. Certainly they were a person of destiny, a person of great change. Could that not also describe Arya? Could she change the faceless men forever? Could she end them as they ended Valyria? Well, how could she do that? Well, I suppose it would be poison. And the method, which if you consider that option, it's actually fairly straightforward. She's serving faceless men here at table as they have a meeting. She's doing that again at a larger meeting of faceless men when there's like 11 of them in the blind girl chapter, I believe it is. 
so in the next book. And, well, there's that scene in the TV show where she murders all the phrase at table. I am very, very skeptical that's going to happen in the books because I just don't see her getting to the phrase before someone else deals with them. Uh, they, are they, she says she would have the phrase on her list if she knew their names. But really, almost all the names on her list that she actually knows the names of are people at the Red Keep currently. Cersei, Sir Marin, Gregor, etc. So I don't know that she's going to... Is she really going to do all that? Kill the phrase and... Other, I just don't think so. I think the phrase are going to be the business of Stoneheart and Blackfish and the Brotherhood Without Banners and, and maybe some of that business. So I think what happened on the TV show quite possibly is they took that, they borrowed the scene, they combined things, they mashed the plots together rather than having Arya kill off Faceless Men, which wouldn't have mattered very much on TV to have her kill the phrase instead because they didn't want to do both. It fits pretty well. Actually, fits really well. I mean, the, she runs away from the Faceless Men on TV and then they just do nothing. They just kind of ignore her and then she gets on a ship and goes west where they, they'll never get her if, she, you know, if she's exploring the, the far west. So that's part of, that's part of the fit here is that, well, if she does turn on the faceless men, even if she doesn't kill any of them, if they want to come after her, that is her escape. Her, if she can never totally feel free if they're hunting her forever, well, if she gets on a ship and heads west to search for new lands, she can have a reasonable expectation of not, never being found by the faceless men. But any other scenario, if she stays on Westeros, they might get her. And even if you don't buy this, wow, she's going to kill all the faceless men or at least as many of them as possible in one go, if that's too much for you, she's still going to have a falling out with them one way or the other. Like she's already gone against their rules multiple times and, it, and she's continuously just refusing to be one of them inside. She's not giving of herself. She's not becoming no one. She just has been who she is all along. The Arya Stark we've been seeing since her very, very first chapters has had very strong opinions on right and wrong. Remember, just go back to Micah. She was so mad about that situation, not just because her friend was killed, but because everyone lied about it afterwards, including her own father. Her father didn't lie but he yielded to an unfair, dishonest outcome. And that just hurt her so bad. She's like, even my father didn't stand up for the right thing here. She did not go along. She did not accept that. She wasn't like, okay, well, this is the way of the world. She's just remained upset about that. She didn't compromise. Arya does not compromise her core values. She understands being helpless. She understands being powerless, but she doesn't compromise who she is. You know who else has uncompromising morals, especially when it comes to ending slavery and unjust situations like that? Clearly, I'm talking about Daenerys Targaryen. So it's a huge open question how the House of Black and White is going to react to Daenerys Targaryen. They like that she's against slavery, but will hate the dragons, as we discussed in Pate's chapter and in other places. So what if someone offers them a huge amount of money to kill her? Or what if they decide on their own to kill her? In this chapter, the kindly man mentions that even the good need to be killed sometimes, lest they live forever. That definitely ties in with Danny's plot line. Consider this. The head priest of the Red Temple of Volantis, we mentioned in the Ariane chapter just now, Benero, says things like this. Here's a conversation between Tyrion and Jorah. What is he saying? Tyrion asked the knight. That Daenerys stands in peril. The dark eye has fallen upon her and the minions of night are plotting her destruction, praying to their false gods and temples of deceit. 
conspiring at betrayal with godless outlanders. Hmm, godless outlanders, false gods, temples of deceit. I mean, that sounds like standard religious fare, right? Like to them, all other gods are false, but God, outlanders, I'm not sure what that part means. Out like, hmm. So anyway, someone's coming for Danny and that makes sense. Lots of, or lots of someone's, which makes sense. Danny's got lots of enemies, but the faceless men could be among them. But that's a little vague, but then there's also this follow-up to it. Benero has sent forth the word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt was she born to make the world anew. She is Azor Ahai return, and her triumph over darkness will bring a summer that will never end. Death itself will bend its knee and all those who die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. So there you go. The, even the good have to be killed sometimes, or they yet lest they live forever. And here we go. Benero's just saying those who follow Azor Ahai, who he's saying is Danny, will death itself will bend its knee. Summer that will never end. Die fighting in her cause shall be reborn. Endless life. Ooh. What a twist if Arya is the one sent to kill Daenerys only to say no? or to turn it around on them, to accept, to pretend to accept it, then to come back around and give the gift to them. I mean, perhaps it's more likely that Arya will just run away like she did on the TV show. After the events of the Mercy chapter, she, like I said earlier, she's earned another punishment. She got Needle back out and killed Raph the Sweetling. Arya Stark does that, not no one. And well, again, they didn't... They didn't punish her for Needle, which indicates that they didn't know about it, but they did punish her for Darian. Well, they will later in this book. And if you don't recall, she's told they were going to make her blind anyway, but they made her blind earlier for a total time longer because of this punishment that's explicitly stated. So I wonder if this will, like many things, produce the opposite of the desired effect. Instead of punishing Arya by extra blind time, <laughs> blind time, she may turn out more skilled in darkness given the extra practice. There's definitely an HBO scene where she intentionally makes a room dark <laughs> to have an advantage because she feels like she's more skilled in the dark than the waif. And it works. So we shall see. And again, what is she calling herself? The Night Wolf. There's lots of evidence Ari is going to do things in the darkness later uh, and make it her ally. I like it. I love it, in fact. We've got episodes on the Faceless Men on the Iron Bank that do not contain this theory, this theory that Arya will kill, the Iron, uh, kill them all, or a lot of them. That is new to me as of a few days ago. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere else. Uh, we're going to need to take another look at the Mercy chapter and a lot of other Arya's chapters as we go through, but that's, that's Valor Reed is for you. We'll, we will be doing that because we, we covered Mercy back in like 2013 or something, and <laughs> 14 maybe. So it's definitely time for another look at that, but we'll, we'll, uh, we will be doing the pre-release chapters um, at the end of Valor Reed we also have an episode just specifically on the Doom, uh, some, from the other perspective, really. As I said at the start, there's a lot of rabbit holes and side trails in this chapter, hidden meanings, etc. The Black Pearl is mentioned real briefly here. We'll talk about her more in the Cat of the Canals chapter because it's, it's, it's discussed a lot more thoroughly there. But just to drop the hint now, Black Pearl is a connection to Aegon IV, the Unworthy, whose children have been all over recent chapters via talk of the Blackfires, Bittersteel, the Golden Company, Bloodraven, etc. So there's yet another offshoot from, from him, and, but also a story of her own because there's lots of black pearls and they're not all connected to him, but most of them are because they're his descendants. <laughs> you can really see how much in writing this book he was thinking about that. Yeah, it's everywhere, right? Yeah. The waif 
is we get more about her. I think we'll probably learn more about her even later. Joe Buckley in particular expects that, and I tend to agree. Working with poisons is another kind of metaphor in that she's given up a lot of herself because the poisons over time have affected her and affected her growth. And she gave him all that she was, all she ever might have been, all the lives that were within her. Yeah, to be just like all these other servants and acolytes, it's a, it's a steep price to pay. The waif is 36 years old, but looks like a little girl. Uh, is she wearing a face at all times? Is that what she normally looks like? Good questions. Um, so we wonder also if there's any f- punishment in her history. Is, is maybe the poisons, was that related to the poisons or uh, who knows? More history coming maybe, but good questions to be aware of. And of course, the notion that sorcery has a cost is referenced right here. All sorcery comes at a cost, child. Years of prayer and sacrifice and study are required to work a proper glamour. Years? She said, dismayed. Yeah, and that's similar to what Melisandre expresses on her side of things about a lot of these magical disciplines taking a long time to master. And with Arya, well, with the five-year gap plan, maybe she would have gotten some of those. But without the five-year gap, hmm, maybe she's only going to get a rudimentary knowledge of some of these things. She may not ever be great at glamours, but instead she has things like skin-changing abilities. So <laughs> she's, she's, a pro, she's a, again, a new form of faceless man. She's got a different skill set, yet a lot of it's the same. She's got their ability to kill, their ability to be quiet, all these other things, but a different magical orientation. She, she makes another connection in cultural, uh, on the cultural side, comparing old men in the North declaring that they're going to go out and hunt when there's clearly nothing to hunt. It's their way of saying, I'm going to go remove myself from the pool of, of people who need to eat and to give my family more ability to survive the winter by not uh, eating the foodstuffs that are dwindling. Arya connects that with people going off to, to end their lives at the pool at the House of Black and White. And I think that's really, really neat connection there. Also, we have this other, while we're going through different forms of faceless man magic, apart from glamours and poisons and all these other things, we have something a little bit more about the candles. So we've been wondering about these candles, and well, here's a little more about it, quote, On the day that we are born, the many-faced God sends each of us a dark angel to walk through life beside us. When our sins and our sufferings grow too great to be born, the angel takes us by the hand to lead us to the nightlands where the stars burn ever bright. Those who come to drink from the black cup are looking for their angels. If they are afraid, the candles soothe them. When you smell our candles burning... What does it make you think of, my child? The kindly man specifically asks Arya what she thinks of when she smells the candles there, which Nina thinks is a uh, perhaps a nod to uh, the idea that the candles of the House of Black and White act analogously to the shade of the evening or werewoods because when Danny eats the, sh- the shade of the evening and when Bran eats the werewood paste, it starts off tasting really bad, but then it turns into extremely pleasant and they think of home and, and things like that. So basically things that they love that are familiar. And one person even suggested that they, the candles might even be made from you know, something from werewood or shade of the evening. It may have that ingredient in there somehow, which, hey, I can't say that's not true. It might be. 
So that's a really good connection, a really good take, I think. The chapter ends with the list again. So <laughs> she's still saying the list, even after they're telling her not to. But of course, I already pointed out that she's still saying the list even several chapters from now. And then at the Mercy chapter, she kills someone on the list. So clearly, it's very distinct. The list isn't going anywhere. But with all this heavy plot development, all this weight of death and the passing of centuries, we get something almost unexpected. Out of all this, the chapter ends not just with the list, but Arya is so happy she could dance, quote. So as she heads out to be cat of the canals, it's so wonderful to see that. She hasn't had joy for a long time and, and you didn't necessarily see it coming. But it makes sense on, in, you know, once you get into it, the freedom, the simplicity, the release from fear, heading out to the docks to be, live a kind of ordinary day-to-day low-stress life right? And, and she likes the dock. She likes ships. So maybe that's kind of a nod to that here. I mean, cat of the canals. Of yeah. The, of water, right? of water area. It's so cool. It fits really well. And, and remember her, her part of her story, her like made up backstory is that she's off the ship Nymeria. <laughs> that's the ship that, that cat of the canals came from. And you wonder too, though, but this is another thing I wonder about the faceless men and their organization. And it makes me again, think of, of mafia style gangs and the way that they exert their influence out in the community. For example, you know, the mafia, they get bribes or rather extortion payments from local businesses for protection. Well, what does Briscoe get out of all this? What does Briscoe, the, the clam seller, what does he get from helping faceless men like hide someone and train them? Like, what is, what's his take from this? Are they forcing it on him? Is he made to do this because if or else... Is that another like hidden dark side to all this? Or is he just, you know, does he get some money out of it? I mean... <laughs> are there bravosi that would have said no? Yeah. I, I, are there I'm, some that are like opposed to it, morally opposed? I would imagine that everyone's afraid to say no, but it's an interesting question. You're like, if, if, what ha- if they did say no, were they allowed to say no? Were they, <laughs> were they taken out because they said no? I mean, are, are the, the people on the ships, the, the, the ship that brought Arya there were totally afraid of the faceless men too. And... Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a little of mafia-esque to it where everyone's just afraid of them, you know? <laughs> and they offer, they, they kill people and it's not about justice, but it's also not uh, exactly clear what their motives are, you know? Gathering power for themselves, certainly. I don't know. Uh, Joe notes a nice quote here. Uh, her bed was stone and reminded her of Hall and the bed she'd slept in when scrubbing steps for Weiss. And... That is a connection sort of to Varus, who sleeps on a stone bed. And the reason that might be relevant is I'm certainly a big believer in Arya being the one to upend Varus is a, a very possible thing, uh, way that things could go because she's learning all his skills, not the political skills, mind you, but the, the sneaking through the tunnels, mummery, things like that. She's basically do, learning all the things that he does better, like that side of things. And a reason she might want to kill him is the same thing, this unaddressed justice, this evil that no one knows about, he needs to be punished for, which is very straightforward. His freaking army of tongueless child slaves. Hello. <laughs> like, if Arya found out about that, oh, Varys is going to the top of the list, or at least on the list, right? Like, can there be any doubt that she would be utterly and completely disgusted by that and then say, hey, I've got the power to kill that guy? I know where he lives and I've been in those tunnels before and I can see in the dark because <laughs> I can see through the eyes of cats and there's lots of cats in the Red Keep and these theories just write themselves when you get on the path, don't they? Nina says Arya's belief that, quote, in her heart of hearts, she's still Arya Stark goes directly against what Littlefinger is trying to teach Sansa. So 
That's a neat parallel that she has to be Elaine in her heart, even when no one is asking or looking at her. Sansa takes that, she kind of believes that she's like, yeah, I guess I do have to do that. But Arya's like, nah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> she's, but she says, okay, she acts like she will. I never really realized that that parallel between the face between Arya and Sansa. I mean, so many other good parallels between Arya and Sansa. This is one I definitely didn't notice. And about having to be taught who to be and rejecting a lot of that teaching. Because we know Sansa is also going to do the same thing. It's the same thing. The student becoming the master. Sansa is going to learn from Littlefinger, turn it around on him, and probably be the, be the reason he's killed off. So if we're looking at these parallels, that line of thinking is not usually applied or ever applied to the faceless men, but it, it sticks everywhere else. There's so many other people that are learning and then they're going to upend the old order. Turn on the people, that the evil people that taught them to say, look, you taught me these skills. These skills are valuable but you've forgotten that these skills should be used for good, not for neutrality, not for evil. Nina also wonders what prayers are actually being said. Like what's the actual prayer to the faceless, that the faceless men say to the many-faced God? It's, it's just, it can, it's probably not just Valar Morgulis and Valar Doharis. It may be how it starts and ends or something, but what else is in there? I'm curious. I wonder if Rob will find that out. So here's another connection to another piece of lore. Uh, you may not have expected this one to come up, but from Fire and Blood, we have the description of Princess Erea's death as set, set down by Septon Barth. The things. Mother, have mercy. I do not know how to speak of them. They were worms with faces, snakes with hands, twisting, slimy, unspeakable things that seemed to writhe and pulse and squirm as they came bursting from her flesh. Some were no bigger than my little finger, but one, at least, was as long as my arm. Oh, warrior, protect me. The sounds they made. They died, though. I must remember that. Cling to that. Whatever they might have been, they were creatures of heat and fire, and they did not love the ice. Oh, no. One after another, they thrashed and writhed and died before my eyes. Thank the seven. I will not presume to give them names. They were horrors. Well, they are given names in this chapter, and here it is. Here's the quote from this chapter. Fireworms. Some say they are akin to dragons, for worms breathe fire too. Instead of soaring through the sky, they bore through stone and soil. If the old tales can be believed, there were worms amongst the 14 flames even before the dragons came. The young ones are no larger than that skinny arm of yours, but they can grow to monstrous size and have no love for men. So again, we have that as long as their arm, the same size, it's, it's a similar description or almost the same word for description as being as long as someone's arm. So the idea may be, and this is something we talk about in our Fire and Blood coverage, but here's a, a maybe a shorter version of it, uh, kind of a teaser uh, the idea that Erea was infected with fireworms spawn that that Valerian took her to, the fireworms laid eggs, live young inside her that they hatched, cooking her from the inside out as they emerged. There's a real there's real world examples of this: parasitic wasps, tarantulas. Uh, it's really quite fascinating and disgusting, but it's not entirely supernatural. The aliens from the alien universe, that's supernatural or sci-fi, but it's a similar concept. And this is what was happening to the slaves of Valyria. Another thing they had to face besides just the inability to breathe properly and to be nearly boiled to death or baked to death, they had to face this as well. 
And, and it people would be like, oh, hey, what happened to, you know, Anar? <laughs> and someone would be like, oh, he, you know, he, he, he died. He got the fire. Yeah. He, like, oh, he got the know. fireworms. Yeah. So what like, are they? Oh, another person, another town with the fireworms. <laughs> and so if we take this and combine it with the legend or the knowledge or the possibility that the Valyrians may have engineered dragons or other creatures or species... And they would allow this to happen. They would allow their slaves to be infected with fireworms and then do whatever with it, right? The experiment on them or just allow things to happen. And then, uh, yeah, who knows what else they do in these laboratories and these flesh pits as, as an actual term that's used in fire and blood and the world of ice and fire as the, the history of ancient Valyrian genetic magic and, and animalistic combining of species and who knows what crazy stuff they did down there. The idea that they took fireworms and wyverns to make dragons is out there. It's just, there's a lot there. This is a very deep rabbit hole, but a very fiery flaming rabbit hole full of danger. You can see why all this is being referenced here. All this rot and disgust and corruption over that occurred over the long term. The faceless men have been around for since before the doom, they've been around for some five or more centuries easy. And over that time, they're not what they began as. This is not the faceless men of the Valyrian mind. This is not the faceless men of new burgeoning bravos as a new city, as a new city state, just trying to make its way in the world, still worried about being invaded and destroyed by the Valyrian freeholders who were still there at the time. They may have never been able to feel safe until the doom, and after the doom, maybe that changed everything. They became a dominant power instead of an upstart power, instead of a organization aligned against the powers that be, they became the powers that be. And over the intervening centuries, they're not as good as they used to be. So, yeah. A lot of ways this could go, right? Maybe, you know, like, this is maybe taking this too far. Maybe she does go and kill the phrase. She does. She says she wants to, <laughs> and she hasn't said anything about killing off the faceless men, but I think there's room for it. And I'm excited for that possibility. Always fun to come up with new theories. So she has this moment where she panics and she thinks she's eating human because it's, and she's no, no, don't worry. It's just pork. I'm skeptical that she did eat human flesh there. It's possible though. But Bran in his chapter in A Dance with Dragons, definitely did and is told it was pork. <laughs> and Joe Buckley points out really good catch. At the same time, Rickon is on Skagos where supposedly human flesh is eaten on the regular. So we got three Starklings in a position where they might be eating human flesh. One of them definitely did. The other two, iffy. Now, if it comes out that eating human flesh has some sort of supernatural power to it, then I'm going to be a little more thinking that Arya did eat human flesh here and that it's somehow part of their training or part of developing them into servants of the many-faced God that it makes them even more inured to this whole thing. But yeah, the, otherwise the idea of her eating human flesh there is kind of weird because they're rich. Yeah, why would, yeah, it'd have to be supernatural or ritualistic. Yeah, or just cruel. Yeah. <laughs> like you said, like they usually eat fish and things like that. There's like, there's plenty of food. Like yeah. food is plentiful in Bravos. They're not like- Especially if you're the house of black and white and you have all yeah, that cash. treasure and money. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's definitely curious. When you, when you lay it all out, it's like, how does this add up exactly? 
And speaking of all that, speaking of rituals and worship and all that, she notices, quote, 30 different gods. And well, there's a variety of, of representations here. One of them is Bacalon. Bacalon is the pale child. Yeah, we used also, to have it on our wall. We used to have Bacalon on our wall. Bacalon is, uh, wields a dark sword. Bacalon is also featured in Jar Jar Martin's Thousand Worlds universe. He's a god worshipped by the Steel Angels, who are a militaristic uh, religious order. They are very, very hardcore. <laughs> Uh, and they're, um, they've conquered many planets. So that's an interesting story. Different rabbit hole. Different rabbit hole entirely. Also mentioned is the Merlin King. How could we pass that over? Of course, y'all. Tying the Merlin King back to not only Brienne's chapter, but the Ironborn chapters. The Merlin King could be a relation to the Squisher King, or could be the Merlin King is, of course, possibly a hybrid of the Squishers because the Merlings are supposedly half human, half Squisher, or something like that. So again, this element is here and you would think that Bravosi have some sort of maybe connection to all that, even though they're not a very old race um, because they're a seafaring people. And if there's, you know, not that they would have direct connection because Bravosi are too young of a people, but they would be aware of a lot of the legends as a seafaring people. They would have sailed to places where they still talk about the Merlings and or Squishers. They go to White Harbor, they go to the Thousand Islands, they go to Ib, they go to Lorath, they go to Lys and Mir and Sothorios and all these other places around the world. They go everywhere. Bravos is a massive sea power. So they've heard the stories. I wonder if Arya will hear bits and pieces from elsewhere, uh, not rather than just from, you know, the House of Black and White or what have you. Really looking forward to these stories getting filled out more. And let's see what you all have to say. Lots of comments here. N. Kirk Evans says, candle smell could be connected to human fat. See Fight Club. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's another, that fits in really well with the use of the bodies and, and the, what's happening. What are they doing with those bodies down there besides slicing their faces off? Good call. Good call. Yep. Rounding out the darkness, so to speak. Chrissy24642 says, maybe the candles don't have smell at all for the faceless men since they are known and don't have sense they associate with their personal past. Ooh, that's a great call. Yeah, they if, if they lose the ability to smell the candle, maybe that is proof that they have finally made it. Interesting. It's kind of like the glass candle. It's the last stage of acceptance for a maester. This, this candle, the fact that they no longer can smell it might mean that they have crossed over into true loss of identity. Great take. And Kirk Evans again says it could be that the faceless men have a long-term goal to eventually destroy slavery, but the moment never seems quite right to do it since it's really hard. So they keep acquiring wealth for that chosen day. Yeah, maybe, maybe they're like waiting for, maybe there's a chosen one from in there. Maybe they have, that's something I'm wondering about. Is there, is there a prophecy? Does the faceless men have a prophecy that they believe in that hasn't been revealed to Arya yet? Certainly that's a, a way a lot of religions operate is that their deepest secrets, including prophecies like that, are not told to anyone. For example, the the god goddess worshipped by the unsullied is something they don't, they are uncomfortable even talking to a little bit about Danny. Danny, of all people, they don't even want to talk to her about it. So, uh, and they keep the rituals to her uh, a secret as well. So it's certainly possible. Fits really nicely. Desert Stormborn Charlie 1 1 says, Well, there's all these corpses after they take the faces, perhaps sell off some of the parts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which also ties into that human fat thing. But the idea of why they would be feeding her food is just that they have so much human yeah. flesh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of sadness that Tree Girl notes here that Arya thinks of Sansa, who had been her sister, a past tense, which is, that's, that's very sad. But I do think that's going to come back around. I, I think Sansa and Arya will have a reunion. 
And Archmaester Emma points out one last clue here. As Ari is noting, one of the acolytes is blind. And that's a clue that that acolyte is a little farther along. He's, that particular acolyte has had his sight taken away as part of the training. Ari doesn't realize that's coming for her as well. Ari also doesn't realize it's coming for her earlier than it would have because of her punishment for Darian. Okay, that does it for this week. Last week, we covered 150 minutes, 15 seconds. This week was 185 minutes, 35 seconds, one of the longer chunks we bite off here. So far, we've done 980 minutes of 2,030 minutes, 48.2% of the book. So during the first chapter of next week, we will cross the halfway point, and that will be Elaine 1. Make sure to check out our website. Our website, Ashea has put a lot of work into that. It's got, not only does it have links to the various ways to support us, but the new feature, the thing I really want to draw your attention to, is that she's got a way to click on every single chapter. You sort by the book, and the, and it gives you a list of every Val Arboretus episode and every chapter. So you can click on, you can go to anywhere you want, and it just goes you right to that timestamp. So it's really well laid out, really, really useful. Yeah, our website has other nice things, other links for you as well. You can, in the search bar, when you search there, it's a drop-down search menu. Anyways, I can see in the stats, people don't really use our website. In general, um, that's how the internet is going. People are moving from websites like that to social media. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's just the case. But it is there for you guys. Yeah, we couldn't put it anywhere else. Yeah, I so. put so much work <laughs> into it, but yeah. Yeah, it also contains links to, you know, like our supporter links. It contains a lot of lists of different oh, artists. And a, it has an about page with information, old information about Aziz and I. Yeah, kind of out of date, like, but still Probably relevant. certainly out of date. But and yeah. it has our list of patron supporters, which contains a lot of fun names that both created by some of y'all and, and, and by us. And yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff on our website, actually, <laughs> as well as uh, li- as well as a list of all of our past episodes as well, not just Valerie Aritas. But anyway, next time we have Elaine One, Enemies at the Gates, aka Who Invited Lady Forlorn. Then we have Cersei Five. The Iron Bank will not have its due, aka the one where Ares rejects Cersei. Brienne 5, the gang meets Septon Maribald, a.k.a. the one with the broken men speech. Ooh, tearjerker that it is. And finally, apparently very finally, <laughs> Samwell 3, cross an ocean to drown in a canal, <laughs> a.k.a. fire and blood and fever. Mm-hmm. What a combo. Fire, blood, fever, and drowning. <laughs> In this episode, we mentioned quite a few of our past episodes, The Doom of Valyria, The Faceless Men of the Iron Bank, House Dane, Great Empire of the Dawn, probably some other ones that I'm forgetting about. We keep continuously referencing the Blackfire Bellions. You can just kind of always take that as a recommendation. But I'm sure you were aware that we've done a lot of Blackfire coverage by this point, since we mentioned that pretty often from time to time. <coughs> Thanks to everyone who attended today. Whether you were a lurker or whether you're participating in the chat, we appreciate your presence. Shea is amazing with doing so many things at once during these streams, managing the chat, managing the technology, reading quotes. And cats. The cats are crazy today. This reminds me. Reminds you? Oh, we need a a cat appearance. We've had a cat uh, 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 request. Well then. 
Thanks also to Joe Buckley and Nina Friel for their invaluable assistance in adding to the core uh, writing of this episode and all Valar Reredis episodes. Thank you very much to our History of Westeros mods for maintaining our presence on Facebook. That is our largest social media platform. Xerxes is not participating. We cannot... We'll try a different cat. <laughs> Who, yeah, so they post artwork and lead the discussion every week. Those, those chats are really valuable. I get a lot from them. I often shout out people's takes. Same goes for Flick and Slack and Discord. Discord has been growing a lot. The others are very steady and excellent and focused. Thank you to Michael Klarfeld. Extra thanks today. We've got his maps displayed. Here's a cat of black and white, appropriate for the house of black and white. Sorry, he's not happy with this. <laughs> and there's Xerxes. Now he's curious. So we got cats on camera one way or the other. Thanks also to Joey Koval, Jesse Townsend for the music assistance. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for same for the Valar Reredis music. Thanks to our Benjineer for making the episode sound better. Thanks to our patrons for the financial support. Go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros to, to learn about which level is appropriate for you. If you want to give financial support, that's the place to do it. And as usual, we like to give a shout out to friend as well as patron, as well as co-fellow YouTuber, Stephen Stark. Here Be Dragons starts in just a few minutes. We're usually within 20 to 30 minutes. Sometimes we go over. This is yeah. pretty perfect. Yeah, 10, 10 minutes. minutes, enough time to use the bathroom, get some drinks. Yeah, so head on over to there. I actually don't recall what they're talking about today, but they're always talking about something cool. So give them a look participate, watch it later, whatever fits for you. And in the meantime, we'll see you next week for more Valar Reredis.